Everybody. Welcome to another episode. I don't actually know what number this is. Uh, yeah, seventy. Do you know, Jim? You, no, I'm, I don't. I was wondering. Are you? <laughs> okay, let me find to, out. Are you even halfway to seventy? Yes, I think we recently got halfway. So I think this might be thirty-six, maybe thirty-seven. Let me see. Something. All right. Welcome to some somewhere past the halfway mark of seventy movies we saw in the seventies. You know something? I, I think about from time to time is like okay what happens when we hit 70 uh another 70 movies more 70 movies that we saw <laughs> well in the 70s. i never think of that but i do think oh how about boy, that- 70 70 movies we saw in the 70s to t-o-o <laughs> yeah well we um I, I you know i got this new 77 inch tv and somebody made the joke that you should uh... Uh, somebody said something about it and I said oh I should only watch movies from 1977 on this TV oh yeah that would be good or 70, 77 movies I watched on my 77, my 77 inch, inch yeah there you yeah. go and then, and then you could be, be you could be more eclectic you know you right throw in I mean I guess another the, the way that I kept thinking and by the way this is episode number 40 so it's wow. further along than I thought. Oh yeah, and, and and a little bit of his cheating because episode thirty nine was from noon till three, which I we stole most of from Cinema Talk. But yeah, but no, which, we got by a good, the way, we got a good talk out of that. We did, and and we've we've had almost five hundred listens to that episode. Um, That's great. Somehow, it's a more popular episode than the Fury episode with Adam Carson and Mike Vanderbilt. But okay, hmm. well, I, I suppose I suppose it's just a. Uh, it's just a weirder movie, and it's also, I guess it's been on, you know, it's been on Amazon Prime lately, so maybe people are seeing it and saying, wow, this is really strange. And, and I, oh, I should uh, follow up to one thing I said on the podcast, which is I thought Pauline Kael had written a, 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 a favorable review of it, and she had not. She, she, she did not like it. Oh. She, yeah, she was critical, especially of Jill Ireland. Um, oh. Yeah, and I don't know that she ever wrote she a long review. She gave it the old review. Dave Kerr, huh? <laughs> yeah, she was... Uh... Let's get into that in a second. But I, right. um, um, okay, well, I'm glad you cleared that up. Um, I, also, maybe it's that we had Dan Gilroy on, and people know the name. Yeah, we're excited I think so. Um, anyway, it's 70 movies we saw in the 70s. I'm Ben Reiser. With me is um, interim co-host, Mr. Jim Healy. Hello, hello. It's great to have you here. Best laid plans of Mice and Men. I thought, okay, Scott's going on tour, and I'm going to get cracking, and we'll do this. We'll get serious about doing this every couple weeks, and uh, we have not. (laughs) Um, It's been busy. It's been a busy summer. It it has, yeah. We've been going away every weekend, and sometimes during the week. 
So, but I think we can. I think we but can. It's all right. Put a, you know. Yeah, we can. We can add a few more notches to your seven. Yeah. We will. We'll keep going. You know, we're gonna do it on our schedule. Yeah. I got. I get a lot of advice from the podcast world. It's important to stick to our schedule and make sure you've got regular content. Eh. Whatever. You know what? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um. But so, uh, as you know, because you clicked on this show and are listening to it and you saw the title of it, we are doing Alien, and I will say that this was Jim's idea. Um, but as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, yeah. And I, and I, I think some of it came from, and maybe you, you, I, w- I want you to tell me what you were thinking when you suggested this movie. Mm-hmm. But of course, some of it is that we ended our summer Cinematheque season well, it's like a month ago, right? Yeah, just about. <laughs> so that's how long we've been talking about doing this episode. We, we ended it with a 35 millimeter screening of Aliens. Yeah, a nice grindhousey print that was nice yeah. and scratchy and a few splices. Most of the credit end credits torn off. That's an in-house print for us at UW-Madison, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's one that was purchased from a collector or a dealer. Probably... Decades ago. We've got well, quite we a few eighties prints. Yeah, we don't do that anymore, do we? Purchase stuff? Yeah. No, because it's not I mean, I think I think a lot of the guys who were in the business and who had regular contacts with those professors who were buying them, um are are just no longer in the business. And so mm. you know, anything anything that's out there is now vintage, right? I mean, because there there aren't multiple copies of prints being made that are then taken to the dump everything is dcp and digital and in the cloud and you know right because that's that's what would happen there would be like you know gatekeepers and literal literal gatekeepers at these dumps where 35 millimeter prints were to be shredded who would you know collect a few bills from uh from these private collectors who would then go in and say oh i can get a you know there's several prints of aliens here or desperately seeking Susan or whatever the stuff it is that we have, you know, because so there you know, there'd be thousands of prints made for right. general release or at least several hundred. But you're saying there aren't these vast troves of 35 millimeter prints sitting in warehouses around the world that have been un- that are untapped and haven't already been destroyed no. or distributed. No, the warehouses are, are gone. I mean, like the there was a national screen service in the U.S., and um, they c- closed all their depots, which were you know all over the country, servicing various regions. You know, and they would have they would have libraries of films. So you know, when when there was no home video, or when there was you know very little threat from home video and cable TV, you could still plan a double feature and say, "Oh, I'd like to show Invasion of the Body Snatchers, nineteen seventy eight again." with this with this movie and it would be seven years after it was released but you know these depots would still have the prints then sometime in the 90s all those depots started to close down and uh in the u.s the you know a lot of the studios had already pulled their prints from these depots um and and then destroyed them but a lot of these deep what these depots had would be like prints from grindhouse releasing companies drive-in specialists, independent uh, distributors too, that, you know, would be around for five or six years and then 
their businesses would fall apart and they, they weren't they weren't bothering to collect the prints. So there were still thousands of prints at these depots and when they all closed, they all went to the North Carolina School of the Arts um, in Winston-Salem. And yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like, I know that collection. that's the... Yeah. Yeah, that's their story. And uh, we've benefited from their collection over the last few years. Definitely. Um, including we had... Um, I'm spacing on the guy's name. We had him come down and do a whole series. Well, we did a whole series of their prints, and he came down. Dave, David Spencer is the curator right. of their collection. Right. Yeah, and so we got to show some real rarities. I mean, you know, a, 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 a Finnish film that that was released in, in mm-hmm. the U.S. and a French film, and um, some you know some I mean, some independent oddities. What was what yeah? Were they, I. I I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I guess uh, the rep, the rep that 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 their prints had in in my head, and I, I don't even know where I got this. <laughs> was that you know that that their prints had been around? A lot of them were kind of in rough shape and yeah, had, had been through the mill a few times. But I want to say that most of the prints that we've gotten from them have been perfectly perfectly good. Um, oh yeah, in, including we most recently showed uh, their print of the Fourth Man this right. summer. And that was a that was a, a a totally fine print. It's a hard film to see, you know. And they've they've got really good curators, and they've done a a good um, you know clearing of the prints, and and they they've got condition reports on everything. So if you're curating a series with them, they can tell you what's in good shape and what's not. Um, they still have you know vast you know this is twenty years after acquiring the collection, vast number of of prints of things, you know, that, that are just sitting in a, in a warehouse that are still needing to be cataloged, uh, I think, yeah. you know, and looked at, right. You know, that when I was, I visited there once and they had like six prints of Richard Pryor live in concert, you know, and if you want to get the one with the best color, they've, they've got it, but you know, it was printed on a pre, you know, the, uh, most, most films before 1982 were printed, you know, color films were printed on, a on, a, w- what was that what we now call a high fade uh print source you know where <laughs> the color starts to drain from the print and, and but uh, starting with, around 1982 they had a low they invented a low fade stock that weren't so right you can still see prints from 40 years ago that are you know that still have pretty good color in them right it's not they're not as amazing as like the ib technicolor prints right no that was you know that's a dye transfer process um you know that that didn't fade. You know, they right. just, it was just a superior, and so you can still find those from the. You know, you can find nitrate color prints that are still in good shape, and you know, and then there, are, then there were like Warner Brothers put out most of their films on um, IB Tech uh, die transfer prints, and so did Universal. So you can get those vintage prints from the era that are, you know, if they've been well taken care of by collectors, and the the color is still good on them. Oh, are there things that you can do to those prints that will screw with the color? Not, I mean, I, I suppose over the years, if you, you, you could, you know, collectors were, you know, would get rumors that, hey, if you shellac them with this, oh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and maybe it, 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 it gave them a harder shell and made them mm. less brittle when going through the projector, but that, you know, it wreaked havoc with the, uh, with the color process or, you know, just, you know, 
start to like see weird patterns on on the film like you see with those old uh, nitrate prints that um am i remembering wrong was live on the sunset strip shot on video no uh i think uh live on the sunset strip was 82 richard pryor live in concert was 79 i don't think so i could be wrong about it. i know the third one or i guess it's maybe the fourth one called Richard Pryor here and now that was definitely shot on video. That's like oh, okay. that one's like eighty three. Richard Pryor live in concert, the one from seventy nine, might have been shot on video. I'd have to look. I don't think so though. I don't think so. But you know that print of Alien that we have. Aliens. Uh, no, we have Alien also. Oh, we do. Yeah, oh. it's a seventy nine release print, and I'm told it's pretty faded. Oh. Uh, as is our print of the Road Warrior, which is eighty-two, which is kind of the the demarcation point for for print fading. So when we showed um, all the Mad Max films, we didn't use our Road Warrior print. No, it's it's too pink. Mm. Uh, the print, the color on the print we got from uh, Warner Brothers was pretty good, and I don't know when it was struck, but it had a little wear on it but it also had the mad max 2 title card it didn't say the road warrior right it was an it was an, like an international print i guess yeah yeah or maybe australia i don't know was it called mad max 2 anywhere other than australia I'm, i think that's right i think you know maybe north america hmm. it was called the road warrior so us and canada but i think yeah everywhere else it was always mad max 2 was it mad max 2 road warrior or just mad max 2 just mad max 2 they weren't into the whole, like, colon, no, colon subtitle. No. Thing. Yeah. No, not until Beyond Thunderdome, but mm. I don't think there's a colon in that title. It's just Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Right. What about Mad Max Fury Road? Does that have a colon? I don't think so. When you watch the film, a lot of IMDb sometimes adds colons to titles that when you watch it on screen, isn't, you know, aren't there. All right. No well,. I, I tried to start asking you what made you think to do Alien right. rather than Aliens, but let's let's save that for a second. Okay. Tell me about the first time you saw Alien. So it's not it's not a movie I saw in the seventies. In fact, there were only two R-rated films I saw in the seventies. One was Blazing Saddles, and the other was the Frank Langella Dracula. Um, and I think I talked about this on the Hot Fuzz episode, but. There was a a pay TV service in Chicagoland before cable came in, and cable didn't really come in until the mid-80s. So in 1980, uh, 81, a pay TV service called On TV was offered, and it's a lot like Wometco well, Home Theater, which you right. and, and Mike have talked about before. Right. Um, and uh, so... Where it was that- like a, it's like an over-the-air transmission... And in, our, in my case, it was channel 68. Yeah, it's like microwaves or something. But then, but you needed a decoding box to right. get the signal Giant to unscramble. Box. Giant yeah. box on the top of your TV. So 1979, I got to see, you know, everything I had seen up to that point was PG or G. Got to see Dracula and Blazing Saddles. Early 1980, my dad took uh, my older brother and me to see... Um, uh, the Long Riders and Apocalypse Now, just a few weeks apart. So that was a big, you know, macho kind of um, rite of passage. And then we got on TV 
you know, sometime that summer. And then the floodgates were pretty much open for R-rated movies. So I remember seeing both Godfather films on there, uh, 10, Blake Edwards, 10, um, uh, uh, Chinatown. And then I, I think it was around Christmas 1980 or early 81, they had Alien. And it was on the cover of the guide for that month. And I, you know, I'd been dying to see it. I wasn't, you know, I, I was hoping I would be scared, but I wasn't scared of it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, my both my, my parents had gone to see it in 70 millimeter in the summer of 79. So I saw it, you know, sometime late 1980, early 81. And, and this is part of kind of what, you know, why the film has been um, so eternally appealing for me. And, and part of the reason why I wanted to do it was, you know, uh, we, we, we showed Aliens and uh, you know, I wanted to, wanted to watch the first Alien again and I bought that 4K Blu-ray. So before, before we showed Aliens, I watched it like the night before and just said, you know, this movie is just, just holds up. It's just so, so good and, 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 and still has it, you know, even though it's got four sequels or, you know, whatever, seven, what, eight sequels now, right? And, and, yeah. uh, and um prequels and comic books and video games and spin-offs and now there's going to be a TV series it's still a movie that has a ton of mystery for me and part of the mystery begins with with seeing it for years i would say it's better part of 10 years every time i saw it and i probably saw it a half dozen times was in the pan scan format so Watching it on on TV later, I had a VHS of it, and I didn't. I, I I'm I'm pretty sure I did not see it in a theater until just like five or six years ago when they rest- they showed the restored 4K uh, original theatrical version at the at the Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna. I got to see it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but part you know so so seeing it for that long and that format that cuts off just about half the image yeah um you know i it's not it's not that i felt like i was missing anything i wasn't really hip to that until even though i'd I'd seen the letterboxd manhattan i wasn't really hip to the fact that i was missing something until siskel and ebert did a special on their show um promoting laser discs in the late 80s and they showed the Graduate and Blade Runner, uh, Criterion laser discs that had been released, and and they showed you exactly what you were missing. They'd show the letterbox, and they'd say, you know, this is what, this is what you're not getting. So, and then I, but then I went out and bought a laser disc machine, and I think I got the widescreen Alien sometime in the early '90s. So I didn't see the full version of it, but you know, it's it's a very, it's a very tantalizing movie in a lot of ways, especially visually. Um, and so when you're watching it with, with half the image missing, you know, you're, you're, (laughs) you're, you're, you're teased even more, which Mm. in in this case is, was kind of a good thing, but I still, even after seeing the full frame, the full widescreen version, and you know, that's the only version I've been seeing for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, it's still a film that has, you know, so many great you know ask more questions than it answers kind of things at least about what's you know what's going on 
You know, I know the other take on the movie is that it's just a big, dumb, you know, monster movie, you know, or, you know, an old, old dark house movie, as they say, in a, in a spaceship. But um, I just I find it to be a, a, a film of uh, continuous rewarding pleasure. Yeah, well, right. And I was looking at Vincent Camby's review a little while ago from the New York Times and that, you know, that old dark house phrase had been in my head ever since 1979. And now I know why, because he actually uses that exact phrase. And first of all, I'm like, well, so what? Like, what's wrong with an old dark house movie? And by the way, what old dark house movie is anywhere near as good as Alien? Yeah. What are what are the classics or what are the what are the benchmarks of the genre that Alien is failing to live up to and surpass? I want to know. Yeah, and you know, and they've and and they've they said a lot of people said the same thing about Jaws, right? You know, it's just it's just creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh come on, you know. Um, (laughs) It's 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 superior storytelling and it's um, you know both films. Jaws and Alien, which I think, you know, and I think Alien owes a lot to Jaws, you know, are are political. Um, and, uh, you know, have a lot to say about, you know, one, in one film, corporate leadership, and in the other, our government, government leadership. Um, right. And, but, and, and they, you're right. Both films have lots of subtext and mystery and but but even if they didn't like they these are two examples of if you just want to call them genre films they're genre films that are also you know as good as films can be yeah i mean it's it's, it's, it just reveals the the snobbery and the taste of the of the critic you know yeah i mean i well we'll we'll talk yeah i i've got all sorts of stuff to say about critics and films that are greeted with poor reviews and not a lot of interest from the public when they arrive. And how many of those turn into all time classics 10, 20, 30 years later. Right. And then on the other hand, how many films that are greeted with rapturous praise and, you know, long lines around the block and 10 years later, nobody wants to talk about them yeah. you know, ever again. <laughs> and like, sure. you know, I'm thinking of like another uh, James Cameron movie, Avatar, which is like, okay, does anybody really want to, well, talk about I, that. In who, uh, who's who? Who is it? Is it Disney that's now, and was it Fox and now Disney that's 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 wagering uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on the fact that people will want to, you know, relive that again four or five times. It's gotta, actually it's got to be more than hundreds of millions. They have to be have a billion sunk into it. This it's got to be. It's a four movies, right? Four movies, but also theme parks, and you know, it's the it's sure the whole, right. Right. It's a whole ancillary business of um, now, now now that's a movie I didn't I, I flat out didn't like when I first saw it. I, I did watch it again a few years ago and and you know and was a little more relaxed about it and said, you know it's it's not bad. I mean it's a it's a it's an okay genre sci-fi movie with some you know some good action sequences and but it's not you know it's nothing special and, and his biggest weakness, is you know is dialogue and and that's one of the, the the original aliens greatest strengths is it's you know it's uh need not to rely on it doesn't have a need to rely on dialogue it's 
You yeah. Know, there's, there's a, I, you know, I was just listening to Dan O'Bannon talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's the, you know, why, why do you need to explain anything? That's why the film has so much mysteries is if you, if you start to put words in people's mouth that sound forced, then you just need to step back and say, well, they don't need to be saying anything about this. Right. And, you know, and if you, and if you put, and if you put words in their mouths explaining, you know, everything that the alien's doing or every motivation of every character, then, and it sounds forced, then it doesn't need to be there. And what's the worst, what's the worst scene in, in Aliens is that long scene where Sigourney Weaver has to face the board and explain everything that went on in the first movie. And, you know, and it's, a, it, it doesn't sound right coming out of Ripley's mouth because she's a, you know, she's a strong, plain spoken working class character and she's saying things you know i mean it's not it's not the worst dialogue but she's saying things you know like talking about talking about characters from the first film as if you know they're kind of foreign to her i watched alien again today having watched it uh, again just like you i'd watched it the day before i watched aliens at, at work but i watched it again today and something struck me uh, about exposition and about spelling things out that I had, I don't think it ever occurred to me before. Um, when after Ash uh, gets dis- discombobulated and um, you know and revealed as a robot or whatever, you know, they they there's there's a bunch of exposition. There's first Yafet Kodo says something about him being a robot. He's right, a damn is- robot. And then Sigourney Weaver says a whole bunch of stuff like, yeah, that must have been his mission. But it's all off screen and it all reeks of like post-production, like we need to spell this out. And I'm like, out of all the things that Ridley Scott has done with his films over the years to like take out voiceover narration and like add mystery back to movies that got overly explicit. Like, I'm surprised he never took those off screen bits of dialogue out. Yeah, I I, I don't know what's different. in the uh, director's cut, other than the than the cocoon scene, but yeah, it's obvious that 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 those were put in later to make it explicit for I don't know test audiences that couldn't figure out what was going on. But Dan O'Bannon complains right. about he, the he whole, thinks that whole subplot whole, is stupid, right? Is unnecessary, and so and I he, disagree even he, with him about. I, that. I disagree too, and I think it's one of the things that makes the second half of the film really mm-hmm. special. Yeah, uh, is that twist and that revelation and. Um, and uh, he he indicate he says a little something there that that indicates what what happened, which is that was the that's the invention of Walter Hill, right? Who also really stripped down a lot more of the dialogue, even more, uh, even though Dan O'Bannon, um, you know, credits himself for being very sure. spare to begin with, <laughs> yeah. which you know, for all I know, he was, but. Um, but uh, yeah. I, th- I think you know I, th- I know that that's that's what that 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 the final shooting script was one that was you know rewritten and and mm-hmm. edited by Walter Hill. Right. And yeah. And you know I I do take everything that Dan O'Bannon says with a big grain of salt. And one yeah, of the he, reasons why is like look at the other things that Dan O'Bannon did, and it's like phew, well okay. I'm you, you know you're you're talking to a fan of Blue Thunder, so you know you know you're not going to get me on that side, but. Uh, but uh, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> well, I also. I also really like Return of the Living Dead, and and I kind of like, like Return of the Living too. Dead. But what's the one that he did? What's the what, what was it? The Dead and Buried. Yeah, not good. Yeah, that to me was like here's Dan O'Bannon saying I'm the alien. I'm the guy who did Alien. Here's my here's my next big thing, and it was like a total piece of garbage. 
Right. Well, you know, he, we, we also shouldn't forget Dark Star, which is kind of a dry mm. run for Alien in a lot yeah. of ways, right? Um, yeah. I, but I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. That's one mm-hmm. of the few John Carpenter films. But he's a, cla- he's a, like a, you know, he was like a really well-known curmudgeon, right? Like a Harlan Ellison type yep. who just, you know, yeah. would always grouse about everything. And in fact, he, he didn't, he and Carpenter, like, they never spoke again after Dark Star, right? Like he... He blamed him for taking over the movie or something, but yeah. Story of Dan O'Bannon's life. Yeah. So I don't have a list of R-rated movies that I saw in the seventies. Oh yeah. But um, I'd love to know. But I, but I realized but that then, yeah, they're pro- but, but but you and Scott were talking about how PG was a totally different thing back then too. Like you know, Lifeguard. Right. Lifeguard could. I mean, if it came out today, it would be rated R, right? I mean, it has to be. Almost all the PG movies I saw in the seventies yeah. probably would be rated R today. But I do remember I do remember that the first R rated movie that I ever saw was Blazing Saddles. Hmm. Um just like you. And then um uh I remember being I remember in seventy six seeing Two Minute Warning, which was a hard hmm. R. That's R, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. God sure. Um and Halloween, I saw in 78. That was R. Right. I'm sure I did sneak into, but I do remember that in 79, Alien came out at the end of May. And I, 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 I have the vibe that, I was, that it was a movie I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get to see in a theater. Um, well, that you're was born in, you're, movies back. You were born in 66, right? Yeah, so I was so 13. You were going on 13, I was, right? I was going to be 13 in August that year. Right. And um, I think I was going, I think I went to camp, I went to camp in in um, Freedom, Maine, a camp Hidden Valley. And I was there, I think I was only supposed to be there for the month of July, but then I wound up staying for the month of August because I was having such a good time and... Uh, that was you could stay for a second session if you wanted to and i said yeah i want to and so i didn't get to see it in brooklyn i don't even think it was even a possibility on my radar um although and 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 i did have this i had this clear memory of spending all summer in camp um pouring over what i remembered as a graphic novel version of alien and then every time I've mentioned that on this show, uh, people have jumped in to say, oh, yeah, it was a photo book. There was this great, like, photo book thing. And, uh, you know, my memory is not great, but I was thrilled to look it up just now. And no, 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 Heavy Metal put right. out a graphic novel version of Alien uh, in 79. And that's what we had at camp. And then as soon as I saw the cover, I'm like, yes, that's what it's called, Alien the illustrated story or an, an illustrated story, something like that. Yeah, I remember both of them. And did Dan O'Bannon have anything to do with that other than inspiring? Like, did he did he have any special? I don't think so. No, actually, I have a picture. I'm just trying to find it. I, I pulled up um, a picture of the cover, and it, um, it's got the name of the... Uh, you know what I Arch- had? Oh, go ahead. It's by Archie Goodwin and Walter Simonson. I don't know if those were big comic book guys or what, but I think they were. Yeah, the illustrator was Walter Simonson, so I guess the the guy who wrote wrote it was uh, Archie Goodwin. 
And I know there's all sorts of geeks yelling at me because I don't know their names and I'm, right, I'm not right. familiar with their yeah, I, the comic book. Yeah. yeah. But so so on the one hand, I was intimately familiar with the movie uh, when on the very last night of camp, um, it was and it was something of a surprise to me. I remember we and we had never done this before. They took everyone to a movie theater. And it was a multiplex, which is kind of interesting that in 79, because it, it wasn't just a twin. There were, there were at least three or four theaters. And this is Maine. And, but I remember this place was a, was, a, was a palace. I mean, it was great. It was like brand new. It felt like you were on a spaceship. Uh, I remember. And, I, and amazingly, they gave the kids free reign. You could pick any of the movies that were playing there that night. So me and my friends were like, yeah, we're going to see Alien. And they were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I guess a couple counselors must have come into that auditorium with us. And I remember it was like freezing cold and the and the seats felt like sort of like futuristic sort of like you know spaceship seats planted my ass down and and saw alien and it was um you know I was I was prepped enough for the big shocks because I had been pouring over that comic book all all summer but it was still st- I loved it I loved every second of it it was fantastic Yeah so there was never any question that you as a 12 year old could see this no. R-rated movie? No, because I guess we were there with counselors who were 18 right. and over. Right, they're your guardians, and <laughs> right. what are they going to do? Call your parents? Yeah. You know, it was a pretty, I guess, liberal camp. It was a, it was a sort of a, you know, was it, I've heard other people's summer camp stories or sleepaway camp stories, and there's all these things like color wars. You ever hear of this? Yes, it's right. Like, yeah, you know, you're you're on a team, and it's all right. sort of athletic based, and there's all these sort of you know, well, like meatballs. Yeah, they still like, they and they still do it. I mean, there's right. colors, color right. groups, and yeah, yeah, my yeah. daughter's got it in her summer camp. Yeah, yeah, and this camp wasn't really like that. Um, there was um, like I I was able to take. They actually had what they would call classes, and I took a Monty Python class, and that consisted of some counselor who had. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail book, uh, teaching us skits to perform at lunch every day for like three weeks. And so every every day for like a couple of weeks at lunchtime, we would perform a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail for the rest of wow. the camps. It was that kind of camp. So Fun. it's not that surprising. And then also, did I just tell this story on this podcast or maybe some other, or maybe it was in, maybe in real life I told this story, is that there was a, there was a beauty pageant, uh, at the camp one year it might have been that same year i was there for like two years in a row um but the beauty pageant was and they didn't call it this back in the day but it was a cross-dressing beauty pageant where the boys were competing to be miss hidden valley and then the girls were you know i guess mr hidden valley um and so what that meant for me was that i got to send and so as a 12 going on 13 year old we were the oldest cabins at the camp like that was the that was the that was the that was the oldest that they let kids come to this camp and so um i got to spend the day i got nominated for my cabin to be our candidate to be miss hidden valley so that meant i spent the day at at the the 12 year old girls cabin where the girls dressed me up put makeup on me and taught me whatever skills they might have and they taught me how to twirl a baton (laughs) <laughs> and I won the fucking thing. 
So I was Miss Hidden Valley <laughs> that year. And the prize was that I got to go up in this little, the the camp owner, I don't remember what his name was. He had this, uh, he had a plane. He had like a biplane. He had like a like a crop dusting plane. And he took me up for, and uh, along with whoever the girl was who won Mr. Hidden Valley, took us up, flew us back and forth over the camp, and we had these big bags of candy that we were throwing out the airplane window down at the kids who were <laughs> the candy That was my prize. And when my, when my mom heard I was in some like prop plane, yeah, I'd be um, more upset about that than oh, you oh yeah, alien. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, she didn't give a shit about alien, right? That was fine. <laughs> um, but the, the, but but you know, watching Alien again, this it's interesting to me. I feel like I feel like I, I'm guilty of this as well. Like Alien is in a way sort of taken for granted and like not. You know, when people say, what What are your favorite movies? What are the best movies? You know, you they're all kind of, I, I'm one of those people that say, you know, say Jaws and Halloween. I, I rattle off a whole bunch of other movies, you know, from the 70s that I that that I was affected by at just the right age. And this is one, too. And then I don't know, for whatever reason, it's not it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, I I tend to not think of it when you just, I'm you forget when I'm being about asked it. those questions. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, and so, and you're saying when you see it again, you you realize how strong it still is. Too, right? I think. I mean, I think in its. I think it's close to a perfect film. I feel like yeah, it does yeah. everything that it wants to do, and it does it brilliantly. I think. I think it's for me and for my taste. I guess it's one of the most visually stunning films that's ever been shot i totally agree and 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 you know and i and i I feel the same way and i wonder if maybe you don't have the same reason why it doesn't it doesn't get mentioned you know among your favorite films uh, or isn't doesn't immediately come to mind which is you know halloween and and jaws are both films by directors with you know really I mean, for for both for us anyway, you know, really great track records, and mm-hmm. and I just you know after after <laughs> right. Blade Runner, I don't really care much about Ridley Scott. I've I've, I've kept with him. I've gone to see all his movies, and you know, I, I was going to say that con, that I know like, you're not a Ridley Scott guy, and yet you're the guy I know who goes to see every Ridley Scott movie. When it comes I do, um, <laughs> there's probably a couple I haven't seen, um, but I went. I, I think the worst one was White Squall, which I saw at a free preview screening once, but. I'm pretty consistent. I just went back and saw a couple that I'd missed over the years. G.I. Jane, which which wasn't terrible. Um, now none of them are terrible, terrible. But I'm just, you know, I think Alien and Blade Runner have a lot in common. I like Alien a lot more than I like Blade Runner. I think Blade Runner is a lot more flawed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Alien's just a much more compelling film. But um, yeah, I'm not. And I think he got he got a little bit into a little bit of the alien feeling into Prometheus, but not, not very much at all in alien covenant. Um, but yeah, I like I, I, alien covenant. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was fine. I thought, I mean, for me, that was kind of like, you know, like the Halloween sequels, like it's just, it's just turned it, you know, it's just a formula where the alien is killing off everybody one by one. But, uh, well, alien, but no alien covenant is Ridley Scott saying, you know what? Everyone loves the ash twist. Why don't, why don't we just make the ash character, the main character? Like, and yeah. so it's all about the Android, um, and his master plan. Like alien covenant almost has, has almost no alien in it. I mean, it does, yeah. 
but the alien is really just, uh, you know, it's almost like a MacGuffin. Yeah, I guess I, 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 I just don't remember it that much. I, I think we saw it together, didn't we? Yeah, it's like it's 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 what's his name? Who's the actor? Michael Fassbender. Yeah, it's Michael Fassbender's yeah. character. I just like, his his character is much more intriguing in Prometheus, is what I remember, but. But I don't know. I don't want to get into the you know the oh, okay. sequels and. The, but I mean, no. I mean, we can. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. But I mean, I just feel like um, I don't know. I just it just in general, like you know, I thought I thought Gladiator was overrated yeah. and you yeah, know, oh, yeah. Thelma and Louise is you know okay, and but it's not it's not great. And those are the ones that that people love. That The Martian, you know, which I thought was pretty dull, and I just don't. There's just nothing that's been that exciting to me but yeah i'll i'll i don't know why i keep going to his movies i guess i guess because i like alien and blade runner so much but it's interesting when i was watching it today because i did the same thing that i guess you did when i watched it last month was i was watching all these i got the 4k blu-ray too and i was watching all the different commentary tracks and watching it today, I was thinking, huh, Ian Holm and Ash, that's the character that sort of, he sounds the most like Ridley Scott. <laughs> like that. Sure. You know, well, maybe he's, they're just from the same part of England or whatever. Yeah, that could be. Um, you know, and that, and then you have to find out later that that was, you know, a character created by the American screenwriter. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that, that, I'm, I'm, I, you know, part of the part of the another another part of the great part of the film is its casting. I mean, because it's really stripped down. There's not there's not a lot in the dialogue that when you find out about characters' history, I mean, there's nothing really right. about who they were beforehand. Just no, you know, they talk con- about that in the commentary tracks, like that there's no backstory and they don't need a no. backstory. Like they no. had more backstory and they pulled not. that stuff out because it's like well, you don't need it. And it's you true. You put you put Yafet Koto and. Harry Dean Stanton and Tom Skerritt and Veronica Cartwright and all these familiar faces and character actors on screen and just it just it just fills in the story. Their faces, mm-hmm. you know, tell the story and and who they are and how they interact with each other and how they talk to each other um, about yeah. the situation. And that's what that's what that's where where their character is revealed. And I don't think it's I don't think it's underwritten at all. I think it's. It's just right, and it's no. also perf- perfectly cast. Just perfectly, perfectly cast, cast, perfectly acted, but also the the t- you know the, in in addition to the cinematography, which is also interesting to me, in that the guy who did the cinematography made almost no movies. No, no, I think he, I want to say he. I remember when I was with the Chicago Film Festival. Yeah, well, he mm-hmm. directed. I mean, he he was the he was the DP on uh, I think several hundred commercials that Ridley Scott had directed. Oh, okay. Um, that's and that's how he got the job. But when I was w- with the Chicago Film Festival, I want to say he directed a movie uh, that we got, and I don't, I don't remember if I got a chance to look at it or not that he mm. that he submitted. But mm. yeah, he he. I don't think he ever. There, there's not. I don't think there are any significant films that he shot after. Derek Van Lint is his name. Yeah, and not only that, but he was uh, Ridley wanted him to do Blade Runner and he turned it down, and right. James Cameron wanted him for Aliens and he turned him down and, and mm. offered him somebody else instead. He must have still been making a bundle on commercials. I guess so. I mean, it's probably an easier gig and if he was making good money at it, like what the hell? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, that, I'm Scott- assuming that Alien that that Alien was not an easy shoot by any means, especially for a cinematographer. So. Doesn't sound like it and it sounded like they had budget restrictions that you know 
that 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 did the classic thing where they were forced to use their imagination and you know prowl junkyards and spray paint things and yeah you know and it just made these indelible sci-fi images um yeah i mean and that's that's part of his you know that's just but but, but the, you know the other thing that's clear from the commentary is that everything was run through ridley scott and he was yes signing off on everything and and being very specific about what he wanted too to the Absolutely. designers and it's right it's 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 the at, it's not just the cinematography but the atmosphere it's atmosphere, the most atmospheric yeah. film and the attention to detail like every frame is bursting with more detail than you see in 10 other films combined you know that yeah they're, and they're not making it it's not showy in any way but like you look at all those sets and you're like this is just Everything feels so lived in. It's it's amazing to me, and it's, yeah, and, and it's, it's all these practical things that were on the set. And when you hear when you hear them describe what you're actually looking at, it's amazing. I was thinking today that I wanted to, that if they if there was an exhibit somewhere at you know Fox Disney or something where all that happened was you could go and play with that self destruct mechanism that she plays <laughs> with at the end, and you're like. Screwing in those cylinders and watching them rise up. I would do that all day long. Like, that's all, that's it for me. Like, just, just yeah. put me there. I'm like a happy kid in like a sandbox. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the production design. It's the atmosphere. Also, it's, it's before he really starts to rely on the kind of quick cutting you would see in his commercials. And he continued to do commercials and the, and the kind of flashy, um, what do they call it? Heightened, uh, heightened editing or, or, or whatever that, you know, that really picks up that, that MTV kind of quick pace that he embraced and that his brother, Tony Scott really embraced in his later films. It's, it's, it's funny for a movie, um, that has a lot of mystery and you know and and shrouds things in shadows and and light it doesn't it also doesn't flinch from a lot of things i mean it, it hides you know certain aspects of the set and certainly you know does the does the jaws thing by not showing you the alien too much and or, or too much of it um but it 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 does it doesn't have that that heightened continuity that heightened editing of you know things being really flashy and quick it's, it takes its time there's a lot of silences and there's a lot of slow you know moments of the, i mean that scene with harry dean stanton when he's alone and goes on for a good five or six minutes doesn't it where he picks right up the skin and, and, and to me and here's the thing to me that's one of the sequences that i that i know they're talking about when they talk about it's really just an old dark house movie it's really just a monster movie and in 1979, it's also really feels like it's almost like tapping into sort of the slasher film. It's almost like, you know, once when Harry Dean Stanton uh, is about to be killed, it's, you sort of feel like, OK, it's just going to be this formula. And they even say it's like 10 little Indians. Like it's like, you know, yeah. it's um, but for all of that, which all that might be true. But I will. But again, I will say. The details in that sequence, the sound of the water hitting Harry Dean Stanton's brim of his cap and his performance when he sort of bathes in that runoff yeah. water and cools off, that's Pure so cinema. indelible to me. Yeah. So iconic. One of the most sort of, you know, resonant 
sequences ever in a movie. Like I, anytime I hear water hitting like a baseball cap brim or something, you know, if I'm walking around in the rain, I'm like, oh yeah, Harry Dean Stanton and Alien. Like that's just an indelible experience. Well, it's also great visual storytelling too. It's not just it's not just atmosphere. He picks up the he picks up the the uh, skin that's yep. been shed and doesn't say anything about it. It's not like he you know he, he they could easily have somebody else in that scene with him, right? Or he could talk to himself. The only dialogue in the scene is you know him looking for the cat, your kitty, kitty, and it's you know it, it's. Nobody, I don't think there's a, there's a line later in the film about, you know, we found its skin, it's shedding, it's bigger now, you know? No, right. it's just, and that's, you know, it's simple, but it's it, it's perfect. And it's actual movie making as, as opposed to, you know, bad writing for dummies who can't figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I wonder if some of the backlash um, that, it, that was, it was greeted with by people like Vincent Canby or Dave Kerr and um, I don't remember what um, Danny Perry thinks of Alien. He's a huge, Alien. huge fan of it. Oh, you he read is? his okay. his essay in uh, Guide for the Film Fanatic. Um, he 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 because he's a guy who takes Howard Hawks' thing over Carpenter's all the time, and right to me that just feels like guys who saw the thing when they were the right age and are loyal to it no matter what. Well, Danny's also a true uh, uh, left wing. You know, he's a he's a real pinko when it comes to his tastes uh-huh. in movies, and so he really picks up on the the idea of the corporation selling out. Um, mm. You know, selling out the, the the crew of the ship, um, which is which is interesting because he you know he's writing at a time before Aliens comes out, which you know plays even stronger and even more. Um, and Alien Three L- is the ultimate. Literally, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, they all all the all the movies do, right? I mean, they all kind of deal. Yeah, with the, with but the I guess it gets muddled in the in the Ridley Scott prequels because everything's muddled in those things. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. there, but it's it's like so painfully obvious, and also yes. just sort of like, you know, you sort of spend most of Prometheus going, "Why is what's his name in that ridiculous old makeup? Is there going right. to be an even younger <laughs> prequel where uh, you know we see and, him?" And there was, like, right? Doesn't he show up younger in Alien Covenant? Like, isn't that? Yeah, but again, just for like a single scene, and it's like, what are <laughs> yeah. we doing? Almost to, just, doing to justify the fact that he had him in old age makeup. <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the first movie, yeah, no, he's a, he's he's a big fan of it. He uh, he talks about how at the end, well. It's just I think it speaks to the movie's strength that it's it's not it's not always entirely clear what the alien is doing and what you know what its intentions are and that's you know and what its history is too it's just all told it's all told visually starting with um starting with the spaceship you know that they discover on the on the yeah. planet right uh, and 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 I know as a 12 year old I I, you know, it's not spelled out. And I was always very confused, not in a like, wait, I don't understand, yeah. but like just didn't get. I for, I, I for the longest time thought this. Who, what do they call him? The the not the pilot, whatever, whatever that creature is they find in the in the wreck. Yeah, they have like but they don't the say navigator. it in the movie, but yeah, but it's like, yeah, it must have been something Dan O'Bannon had in his original screenplay or something. Right. But that that he's not. He's not an alien. He's not an alien. 
Like he is a different species and right. the aliens, uh, you know, were either being, I guess we find out five movies later that the, you know, that these aliens are being used as military weapons throughout history and, or, you know, right. And, so and Ridley this, Scott says that in his first commentary, which he recorded in 1999, he says he imagined it was an alien spacecraft that had developed or come, come across the, this organism and was using it as weapons and which is why right. the eggs are in the whatever it was at the bottom the bottom right. deck of the ship or something yeah and that and that it just got out of control and you know and took over the ship and as it as it would right and i think i didn't understand for the longest time that 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 sub chamber is actually still part of that vessel i just thought no. like oh yeah. this ship crash landed on this planet and the what they're in where they find the eggs is a cave that's on that planet. And, like, this planet is the alien's home. And, you know, and it's all, you know, that's fine. It's fine that I misunderstood it. or did, And it didn't matter. I didn't care. Like, yeah. it's great. You don't really know what's happening to them. They don't know what's happening to them. They're not really fi- understanding what, what they've walked into. And, and no, so why should a, we? There's a whole list of things that are still kind of vague and mysterious and, and semi-unanswered. Uh, for me with the movie and I had it you know I had had it my parents had seen it and I had had the whole story explained to me by uncles and you know and of course the thing everybody talks about is the the chest burster sequence mm-hmm. um, which is I don't know after seeing it so many times and with all the increased um, gore in other movies isn't, isn't that shocking well no it's shocking it's just not as gory, I guess, as as it could have been, or or no, or but it's exa- it's perfectly gory. It's fantastic. Uh, that, yeah. That's there's a scene that like you know just holds up, <laughs> like you know you oh, right. Yeah. Even that's the thing. By the time I saw the movie, I'd seen it in comic book form. I'd seen that. I knew exactly what was coming, and it was still like wonderful. And you know, and the and the story, which it doesn't seem to actually be just an apocryphal story about Veronica Cartwright and the rest of the cast not really knowing what was going to happen when they were shooting it and it's, you know, that that's her real reaction to getting whacked with like a gallon of blood. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh it's great. You know, it plays perfectly. Like you totally believe uh that they are reacting that way. Well, I want to I, I I guess we there's there's probably more to say about that, but before that and after the after the discovery of the of the alien spacecraft there's there's still a bunch of things that you know like okay so the so the face hugger comes out of the egg and jumps onto john hurt's helmet and presumably it secretes out just enough of its acid blood to melt through the facing but that's never that's never discussed uh you find out several minutes later that it's got acid for blood it's several sequences later it's it it, it kind of follows up but i don't know that that's at that moment it's it's not that anybody says a line at that moment that's how it got through the helmet or you know yeah and and i think it could be that it just it it leaps out of the egg with such force that it's you know it's strong enough to be able to break through the crushes it the plexiglass of that helmet but you're right that helmet does the, the the sort of the the faceplate, the the, the 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 window of that helmet does look like it's been melted, but yeah. that also might be because they are they're lasering it, they're they're cracking it open with a with a laser, they're they're you know laser sawing it in half to break it off of his his head, the helmet. 
Right. Right. Don't they? Or, or is it an actual saw? No, I know they like use a, like some kind a of laser electric. Thing to, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's but like, then later like, on, they use that kind of laser thing to cut the um, to cut below the knuckle. Just cut it right. just below the knuckle. And that's <laughs> right. what they find out about the acid blood. Right. I guess that was Dan O'Bannon's contribution was that it would, would have fingers, um, human looking fingers. I got to say, as many times as I've seen the movie, every time I see Ian Holm, I'm amazed at at all the little things that he's doing for the first 45 minutes of the movie. Uh, it's just, just wonderful. To, to signal, you know, on repeat viewings that this is an android. This is not a... Yeah. His performance is so brilliant to me. It's great. He's just he's just great. I think everybody is terrific. Everybody get, get, has that kind of commitment in the film. Well, here's the thing I was thinking, and I, 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 you know, I was only doing my own internal crackpot research today in my head about... These franchise, these movies that turn into these, you know, um, world-beating franchises like Star Wars or Indiana, right. and what what I think in most movies other than Alien, most most or at least a decent chunk of the cast of those movies wind up being forever sort of tied to whether they want to or not to that franchise. And the thing about Alien is, other than Sigourney Weaver, I don't think anybody. Anybody got stuck that way. And even Sigourney Weaver, she did four movies within 18 years and completely established herself as a serious actress and not a, you know, and not a, you know, not just Princess Leia. You know, she was right. She she was, you know, doing, you know, I think her only Oscar nomination was for Aliens, but she was completely, you know, as a theater and a film actress did. You know, comedies and right, but I guess what I'm saying is, 30 or 40 years later, you say Sigourney Weaver to somebody, and the first thing they're probably going to say is Alien. Whereas you name anybody else in this cast, and maybe they might mention Alien, but more more is likely they won't. Like that won't be the first thing on their in their head. No, no, that's true. It's not. It's yeah. It's not the first movie. Maybe, maybe Tom Skerritt. Um, not for me. Like I would. Yeah. I mean. I, yes, I mean, I love Tom. No, he's but, great. In, he's great in Mash. He's great in. He's great and up in smoke, you know. Um, and then he went on to do this Picket Fences show for years. And right. he, I think there's a whole generation of people who know him only from Picket Fences. Yeah. And he you was know, on Harry Cheers, too, right? Hmm? He was on Cheers also, wasn't he? Scarrett? Was didn't he? he have a, didn't he have a recurring character in one of the later oh, I don't seasons? Know. That's an interesting question. I don't know the yeah. answer to that. Was it later I mean, seasons? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Kirstie Alley years, I think. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, you know. Oh, well, I yeah, I m't. mean. Yeah, he's just got, he's just, he's just a ubiquitous character actor. So much stuff. John Hurt wound up with Elephant Man, which I think, you know. Sure. And, and, and Ian Holm, you know, Ian Holm, it's not a guy who, I mean, Big Night, I love Big Night, and I love Ian Holm in Big Night, and I love the, I love the idea of Ian Holm being Ash and being the guy he is in Big Night, because they couldn't be more diametrically opposed as characters. Or how about his uh, Napoleon and Time Bandits? Oh yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. In a lot uh, of in a lot of great movies. I mean, he's yeah, just and I don't a know what that says about the movie, but I do think it's interesting that that as iconic as it is, all these all the people, all most of the cast of this movie got to have got to continue got to have their cake and eat it too. Fruitful careers that got them doing lots of different stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a, and it's a huge huge movie. I think. You know, maybe because it wasn't 
Star Wars big. I mean, it was big enough to launch this franchise with, you know, and I'm I'm pretty sure Aliens made more money than than the first one, um which, you know, made it made it this you know, behemoth franchise for Fox, but but I think uh it's just it just was just successful enough, right? Just this kind of movie that you know, wasn't gonna you know, people they weren't trying to uh they weren't trying to uh, immediately capitalize on the success of it. I mean, although other movies were right, I mean there were lots of rip offs, all those Roger Corman Galaxy of Terror and Forbidden World and uh there's even that great joke in um Modern Romance where they're talking about the the bowels of the spaceship in the movie that Albert Brooks is editing. Yeah. I saw aliens last night, and they said bowels of the ship. And that 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 is that did, we just we both watched it. I don't remember. There's no line about the bowels of the ship in Alien, is there? No, I don't it's think just so. A, so, but they are definitely in the bowels of the ship at times. Yes, two ships, both the the right. alien spacecraft and their own right ship. Right. Yeah, definitely their own. Yeah, I mean, um, I pre- I presume that that. That uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Yafit Koto work in the bowels of the ship, right? That's like they're, yeah, they're operating a oh, lot of yeah. machinery. Yeah, they're messing around with the steam pipes and driving Sigourney Weaver crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what? Can't he- I can't hear you? <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, uh, was Saturn three? That's after after Alien. It's like, but yeah, is it I mean, after? Is it's it like a year and a half? Yeah, oh, okay. it's like late nineteen eighty. I mean that feels like a total alien ripoff, but I was wondering if maybe it got shot. I think it is a little bit, certainly with production design and. You know. Well, there you know the other thing about Alien. Here, here's one of these things where like people seem so sure of it, and the filmmakers deny it. And, I'm, and this, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. You know that Ridley Scott and maybe Dan O'Bannon both say they never saw. Um, what is it? Vampire space, Vampire Planet. What is it called? What's oh, Planet of space the Vampires. Vamp- Planet. Yeah, is that what it's called? Planet. Yeah, of the Mario Vampires. Bava. Yeah, yeah. You know, I watched that movie three or four years ago, knowing that everyone cites it as this huge alien influence, and I was like, eh, I don't know, maybe. What's the big? Isn't there like a big reveal at the end? That, like we were, we we presume that they're humans from Earth, but it turns out that they're not. They're not even. Mm. They go to the planet of the vampires, but then it turns out the space voyagers aren't even human themselves. Isn't there something like that? Maybe I'm thinking that of might be movie. the Planet of the Apes novel, <laughs> where it's like they're not. It is actually a Planet of the Apes. It's not Earth. You know that? Right. Like in that Pierre yeah. Boulle thing. Oh yeah, it was like Rod the, Serling's uh, yeah. invention. Was the yeah, which makes total sense. We were home all along. Yeah, you blew it up. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, they say they never saw it, and and I'm 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 not a huge Mario Bava fan. I think, I think, uh, I find it hard to believe that Ridley Scott never sought out one of his movies just to figure out atmosphere, because Mario Bava is the king of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I really I really love his films from a kind of mood and production design standpoint, but uh, yeah. The last time I tried to watch Planet of the Vampires, I was like, "Yeah, it's kind of cool looking, and it's, but it's not. It's, it's, it's pretty boring. Yeah, it's pretty dull. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, it that. could 
Planet of the, it, it looks great. It could easily be on MST3K. Yeah. Well, but the other one is the um, the other one that they that I think O'Bannon and Shuset say that they were inspired by was uh, it the terror was it it the terror from beyond space is that the one? It's it. Yeah. I don't think it's a Corman production, but it's like an AIP. Arkoff, Nicholson. Um. But here's here's the thing that I that I that I think the movie gets a lot of credit for, but it's surprising to me wasn't as impressive to the critics that I was reading today at the time. Which is the treatment of the dialogue and the overlapping dialogue and the off the cuff Im- improvised sound of the dialogue and the and the you know the low key nature of all the interactions between the the crew members for the first half at least half of the movie, which is so yeah. sort of Altman esque. You know the sound design, like you, as many times as I've seen the movie, I still don't think I've understood or heard all of the dialogue that they're saying around the table the first time they they have a meal together after they wake up and then even uh in the one right before the chest hugger uh, the chest yeah. burster scene uh, Pro- probably improvised the actors were probably asked to just come up with their own stuff and it's that, fantastic right? and it's such yeah. a i remember as a kid thinking like oh my god this these are like real people and this yeah. is not like a science fiction movie this is i've never seen a genre film, you know, even as a 12 year old, like I've never seen one of my horror movies or stuff where people talk like this and, and this kind of weird off, it's, off the cuff nature of the, it's one of the real markers of a, you know, uh, of alien being a, you know, kind of a quintessential seventies movie. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and I think the fact that Ridley Scott directed it and put so much into the production design, um, you know, shows how it's also, you know, one of the last, last of the seventies movies and one of the first of the eighties films too. And that there was, you know, the movies became, you know, increasingly, at least Ridley Scott's movies and a lot of, a lot of Hollywood product, you know, just tons of money poured into product production design, but, you know, very little put into story and, 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 in, you know, and creating something really original, you know, just a lot more sequels and things like that. But it's, yeah, it's um, really you know even though it's you know, apparently the plot is largely lifted from that AIP movie, um, it just it just strikes me as a really original thing. And then back back to the the revelation of Ash as an android. It's it's one of the things that's really special about the second half of the movie. It's 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 just as frightening and unsettling in its own way as the chestburster scene. Oh, um, the um, I have it written in my notes. The most disturbing scene for me has always been Ash trying to shove that porno magazine down Ripley's throat. Yeah, and then just his own, uh, you know, getting destroyed and you know having his head disembodied and all that crap pouring out of him and those those little you know clear marbles that you know look like lights or you know whatever and and. Um, and that's also, you know, and then and then the the whole idea that comes from that is that he's a spy. He's a, you know, he's a corporate spy that's been put there to preserve this creature as a weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't say that. I don't think they say that. That's more literalized in Aliens, right? They it's just it's just the idea is that the the crew is expendable. 
Yeah. Save the save the alien. There's a little more that comes out of Sigourney Weaver's mouth again off camera. Uh, you know, he's like, he, you know, he's a he's a robot. He was sent by the corporation. To right. Da, da, okay. Da, 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 That's right. But okay. It's not much. Yeah. And 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 that is another just the idea that idea that just seems really like a like I can't imagine that that movie in a pre Watergate pre right. you know. Uh, all the late sixties assassinations kind of, you know, that, 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 those, those, those things that just so affected the mood of, of the world and the country and, 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 and the attitude of Hollywood and, you know, in so right. many movies that that's, that's, that's something, you know, star Wars has a very kind of, if you look at it closely, has a very kind of grimy visual aesthetic. I mean, there's, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not a shiny, you know, right. it's meant to it's meant to look like an you know an old world. A lot of it, you know, except the Death Star, which is this you know creepy, shiny, yeah. new weapon. But you know, the but the story itself is very kind of pure and you know and um, yeah, there's a dark side, but it's very much about how you know the the forces of goodness and love you know triumph over mm-hmm. uh, over 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 the evil. Uh, government you know yeah um and well, alien and I, is is much more bleak oh yeah in every yes. way and, and that's what and that's one of the things i love about alien 3 is that it 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 takes the bleakness and runs with it in a way that i don't know any other hollywood franchises have ever run with but i would say that the that the clearest indication of alien being the end of the 70s and aliens being the you know one of the major uh, milestones of the eighties and ushering in the eighties is, are the differences that James Cameron um, decides to make, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that he takes from alien. And then there's all kinds of stuff he doesn't. And the thing to me that he really doesn't take and goes in the total opposite direction is the dialogue is the way the characters talk. And it looks like some kind of secreted resin. You know, yeah. that's that's not a line you hear in the first Alien, but no, it's he, he, yeah. He literalizes and explains a lot more right. that's that's left to your imagination in the first. And film. and I think that the you know I don't think it has to be a question of which one's better, Alien or Aliens. And I but I, I do think that that debate does happen. And I think I think Scott might be more of an Aliens guy than Alien, although I'm not mm-hmm. actually sure about that. But I would say. The, the reason I would always take Alien over Aliens, especially having just seen Aliens again, is that um, I think once Aliens, and this, of course, is, this, is a, this, this is like a blueprint from Alien. The, the scene where Newt and Ripley get locked in that medical bay with the alien, that Paul Reiser has, that the, is an amazing, hunter. a brilliant, uh, such a... Um, you know, and, 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 and a lot of it's stolen straight from Alien, that sequence, but really terrifying. And I think once that scene kicks in, the movie never stops and it's got you. There's You can't not get involved with that movie once that scene happens. Um, yeah. But up until then, I feel like Aliens is not particularly rewatchable for me in a way that Alien is. Like, there's no there's no part of Alien that I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the whole first firefight in Aliens is so boring to me after the first time seeing it because it's really it's kind of a bullshit thing. 
it's a very goofy premise that like, oh, wait, we can't have guns in here. You know, that whole thing. It's like it doesn't hold. It's not there's nothing about the way it's been uh, choreographed or shot or anything that's that that lends itself. There's nothing you're going to discover about that sequence once you've seen it once. Not that it wasn't effective the first time I saw it, but every time since I'm like, okay, can we move past this? I want to just get to the rest of the movie. Right. I think that's fair. I think, um, and even before the firefight, he there's still, and that's still like almost an hour. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, it's a little. So it's it's about an hour before. Well, I don't mind it so much. I mean, I feel like. Um, I like the stuff with Ripley at the beginning. I like her. Her her alienation, her isolation. Alienation. Oh, I like all that stuff too. It's yeah. just her dialogue in the scene where she has to talk to the uh, yeah the board. It just right. it it just seems it's it's exposition put in her mouth, and it just seems awkward. Well, but, um, but, well, but here, let me just say one more thing about that scene though. But the, here's another difference between Alien and Aliens is like Cameron goes all in on what he thinks is going to be the future styles. These guys wearing these sort of Nehru type jackets where the collars are not thing. And it's, you know, it's like immediately dated. Right. But no, but you see it. And that's the, that's the thing that's to me, alien is second only to, and maybe almost equal to 2001 in a movie that although the technology is technically dated and was soon after, it was made it never feels that way like i'll watch alien even with the computer stuff even with the silly sort of um, i'm asking the computer a question and it's answering me this you know thing and 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 the tvs are all tiny little squares and there's all those goofy lights in that computer room but like why what are those dumb lights you know but it it's it i totally believe every second of it the way i believe all the technology in 2001 where i'm like wow this is really like I believe I even though I know better, I still believe that in the future this is what the spaceship might look like. Yeah, well, and, and and a good reason for both those movies, for both 2001 and Alien, is that the characters uh, have been living in this world mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. whole lives and working in yeah. this world, and so right, you know, you take it for granted as a viewer because the, the actors are so good at taking it for granted as characters. Right. This yep. is these are the tools. These are the. You know, it's not like it's not like they discover something and have to explain it to us. Uh, it's it's you know, it's that it's such a lived in world, you know, and 2001 is the shiny, gleaming future. Right. But that's, you know, everything is everything is very clean and antiseptic. But that's that's Kubrick's point that, you know, that's that's just as soul deadening as a working class job on a mineral freighter, you know, where they're, you know, not, you know, it's, 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 it's the work and where they are and how they function in the universe that is, is dictates how we as an audience relate to watching them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think there's something magical about the production design in both those movies where, okay, in 2001, in the actual year 2001, how that computer wouldn't have been that whole big room. There wouldn't have been all those sort of things you yeah. have to pull out and stuff. But I don't, I don't ever for one second think of that while I'm watching it or even afterwards. I'm like, I buy, I buy this. I totally buy yeah. that this is how this thing works. 
and, and the same thing in Alien. But I do think it's this common mistake in science fiction movies and movies that take place in the future where everything is clean and shiny and not doesn't look lived in at all. And I think the opposite is true as well, where there are lots of period piece films where everything sort of looks like it's already been antiqued, even though we're like yeah. looking at yeah. people living in the 1890s. And so sure. there, there wouldn't be cobwebs and, and like, you know, the wallpaper wouldn't be falling off the walls. Yeah. And back to the costumes again, they have actors, you know, in victorian clothing who are clearly uncomfortable and not right. moving naturally right um because they're not i don't know not given the time to live or they or they don't have the imagination to to show somebody being being comfortable whereas in alien you know everyone's costume is perfect and perfect yeah for them and you and you know uh Sigourney Weaver, I mean, you know, to skip ahead to that final sequence, you you, you buy every second of her, of what seems like the intimate knowledge she has of that of that capsule that she's escaping in, and how she can climb into the spacesuit and knows where the zippers are and how to put it on and what you know how she can open up the airlock. Like you know, like you believe that she is the master of that thing and that she spent years dicking around on that. Totally. And uh, kind of related, Ridley Scott gives himself a little bit of credit for inventing the fake out ending where Mm -hmm. he says, you know, movies today have ending after ending after ending. But um, I can't think of I can't think of too many horror movies that, you know, really let you feel like, oh, the story's over and then they continue for another 10 minutes i mean cameron it, certainly put you know does his own version of it yeah in aliens but um before aliens, no but it's there... uh no Sorry. not not that goes on like that and it's absolutely no. brilliant i mean jaws the shark blows up and the, the guys meet up again right. and the movie's over uh right the living dead it's when the last human character we've asked to identify with is dead the movie ends and so, you know, and those are the big horror movies. But, I mean, is there even another action film that hmm. it's it's great? But, I mean, how many movies have done that since, right? I mean. Right. So that Alien. it's all, it's one of these movies. Alien, I guess. And I don't I can't remember. I think that when I when my kids saw it, they were into it. But I feel like it could be one of these movies that's been copied over elements of it. Or at least structurally been copied so many times since that it like loses its uniqueness i mean Could i know be. when i try to show my kids halloween they're always like rolling their eyes and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> seen this a million times yeah um i but, like halloween uh, i'm not as big a halloween fan as you are but it, it, it just it's it doesn't i really like the stripped downness of it i think that's you know that's what's special about it and and it, and it has you know it's just it, it's 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 it, it has mystery you know they're unanswered questions but they're just not as they're just not as interesting questions as the ones in alien about about the thing that's killing everybody Um, well i mean to me they are but i never wanted them answered and the whole the joy of it is that it's a mystery and that this turns out to be an otherworldly creature which you don't yeah it's got a supernatural thing to it which you don't really know Uh, isn't isn't obvious until the very end 
which I think is wonderful. And then it's unfortunate that they ever went further with it. Yeah. And boy, Halloween Kills looks like it's another pile of crap. Yeah, I'll probably go see it, but yeah. Um, I'm looking at my notes to see what else we haven't brushed up against. Well, oh, do we do, let's talk about the um, the cocoon scene in the in the director's cut. Okay, the, well, sure, and it's um, you know reading reading I right before we got on, I was looking at the Wikipedia, uh, and they were talking about the production, and they were talking, and and they and they talk a lot about. I think Dan O'Bannon talks about the cocoons and stuff and there was a whole you know there were apparently there was a three-hour version of alien before they cut it down to two wow and they they talk a lot about what their thoughts were with those scenes that ended up getting deleted and 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 cutting cutting the scene where um ripley talks to uh dallas as being cocooned and they had it doesn't sound like they quite figured out what they were trying to so, say but they they had some definite ideas yeah and on the commentary and this is 20 years or 20 almost 25 years after the movie came out ridley scott says that he imagines that that they're being they are being turned into or consumed by the eggs and i don't know right. if he meant that that there were going to be eggs planted near them as in aliens where they're cocooned up and they, or they themselves are being turned into consumed by that, that, you know, secreted stuff on the walls that's cocooning them in, into they're being, their bodies are being turned into eggs. Yes. That's, I'm trying to find where they talk about this because that's exactly what they, that's exactly what they say. And, but it isn't Ridley Scott saying it. So I feel like it isn't just Ridley Scott making stuff up years later. And, you know, and clearly Cameron saw the scene or knew about it and built that into the lore of the, you know, of the franchise. And, um, but, it, you know, if that scene had been in the original version, it would just have completely confused me i mean what right. what is going on exactly so, okay here's here's the why paragraph. aren't they dead okay here here's what it says one scene that was cut from the film occurred during ripley's final escape from the nostromo she encounters dallas and brett who have been partially cocooned by the alien o'bannon had intended the scene to indicate that brett was becoming an alien egg okay i'm lost while yeah. dallas well dallas he's on, he is unrecognizable she has to say brett right. so you know it's brett you, you know. right Right, but what does it mean to become an alien egg? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's that's part of the mystery of the film is that, and I think that's something that kind of Prometheus and Alien Covenant are right. trying to explain, which is that the first aliens, the first, you know, weaponized creature that came out of the, what did you say he was, the commander, the, what's his name, the... <laughs> it's not the pilot. The, what the hell is yeah. it? The navigator? It's not the, the navigator. Planes? I don't know. Anyway, he, he the, that the, giant the geeks are really going to be screaming about this. This is something <laughs> that they, I've been reading about since 79. 
that what came out of his chest didn't look like the alien that's chasing that that that's attacking everybody on on the Nostromo. Well, I just right? thought I that, always thought it grows into this other thing. Like that's what a baby alien looks like, and then it you know. I, you're right. I guess I've never no, because it's because it's blending with another. You know, yeah. it's mating in this perverse right. distortion, which is which uh, is the same uh, concept as Carpenter's The Thing. Although I don't think it's Howard Hawks The Thing, which is that the thing keeps changing its form based on who, what it, what it becomes, what it grabs as its host body. So that right, when, but when it, re- it it replicates where it but, replicates whatever know, it's it right. Re- but this isn't like that. This thing. is this just. This is a different looking thing, but it's just some distorted, you know, weird alien looking thing that maybe has some, maybe has some aspects of the, of the big headed alien, but, but looks like something else. And so when it, when a human interacts with one of the eggs, which, you know, might've been, uh, one of the cocooned aliens on the navigator ship, uh, turned into an egg and then blends with john hurt it becomes something totally different looking but the thing isn't just replicating because i mean no at at a certain point it becomes this spider creature with the one guy's head you know it 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 too is like a blend of whatever the hell it is and what's the spider creature what are we talking about there's remember that after the after the after they crack open the guy's body and and then the body bites the doctor's arm and there's oh you're talking about the thing okay yes i'm talking about the thing yeah no you're right right in between in between uh, in between replications it's all kinds of into humans yeah yeah no i'm you know i was uh, right you're right there's there's creatures and but it's it's on its way to becoming ultimately you know okay but i'm only halfway through this explanation okay go ahead uh uh, Brett was becoming an alien egg while Dallas was held nearby to be implanted by to be oh. implanted by the resulting face. Okay, oven. yeah, right. that makes sense. So, okay, but how can how are you going to get that from that scene? I don't. Sorry, know. go ahead. Keep reading. Well, because who knows how long that scene went on for in the first cut? That's true. Production designer Michael Seymour later suggested that Dallas had quote become sort of food for the alien creature. While Ivor Powell suggested that, quote, Dallas is found in the ship as an egg, still alive. Scott remarked, quote, they're morphing, metamorphosing. They are changing into dot, 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 being consumed, I guess, by whatever the alien's organism is, dot, 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 into an egg. So Scott sounds like he's sort of making stuff. Like he's like, I don't really know either. This is, I think it, it was it, something it, to do. It shows yeah. that he didn't know what was going on shows in that scene. Um, so, but then it says the scene was cut partly because it didn't look realistic enough, but also because it slowed the pace of the escape sequence. And then Tom Skerritt says the picture had to have that pace. Her trying to get the hell out of there. We're all rooting for her to get out of there and for her to slow up and have a conversation with Dallas was not appropriate. Yeah. So, right. That's the time. And it makes it makes just yeah. And it makes no sense. You don't know what's going on unless you've seen aliens. Yeah, but does it but but you seem to complain be complaining about it, but doesn't wouldn't that also just add to the mystery of the film? It's like, well, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Yeah, no, it's true. Um 
That's true, I suppose. Uh, you know, that's that's there's something nice about it. Maybe, maybe I do feel like it slows down the the. Pace. There's also something about uh, Nancy Cartwright complaining about how they edited her death, and that there's this suggestion that the alien is about to rape her with its tail, which was not yes. which was not the way they shot that scene. Was never written that way, and they cut a lot of her death, and it was completely you know. That they used that one shot to suggest that thing, and she's like, "I." When I saw that, I was like, "What the hell is this? Like, this had nothing to do with how with what the scene was on the day." <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I've read readings into that too, and um, you know, there's a, the, the there's that one shot of the creature's tail, you know, slinking by her. Well, it's like sort of coming feet. up between her legs. Yes, right, and that's. Just that's all you need, I guess, to just fuel all kinds of. I want to say that that's one of the scenes in the movie that I feel like I don't understand the the geography of it as an action scene in a way that I think I understand most of the rest of the film. I don't understand where Yafakoto is. He seems to be yelling at her to get out of the way so he can shoot the alien, but. It doesn't feel like she's between him and the alien. I'm not sure what he's asking her to do. I don't know where he is in relation to the two of them. Yeah, I agree. It's confusing. It's something that Cameron would have done right. Yeah. Uh, and made, yeah. made a lot more... And, it, and the film would have been better for it. Uh, you know, a little a little more thrilling, I guess. Um, that's, that's his strength. He knows how to direct action scenes and tell you, you know where characters are in relation to each other. That's one of his great strengths. Um, well, you know, I suppose getting back to, you know, how I feel about that, about that scene and, and is kind of how I feel about uh, most Ridley Scott movies that, that come after uh, Blade Runner to its, to its um, advantage has a lot of the same kind of mysterious like well what exactly is this and and you know there's there's more questions asked but the other films just uh, they just seem to be about production design there's just not enough going on um to be really interesting really interesting or they're too literal there's just not enough visual mystery going on in the stories for them to be entrancing to me i guess so do you think that the mysteries of and the 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 extra layer of like this film has something there's something to it that you can't really put your finger on but is <laughs> but but makes it this eternal classic for but do you think that do you do you think of those as happy accidents for ridley scott that he's not he's not that he sort of stumbled into those two films that 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 really lend themselves to repeat viewings for all kinds of reasons and have these mysteries about them and these ambiguities. And he, it's not something he was actually striving for. And then the, you know, the other films, all the other films he's worked on, the scripts don't lend themselves to, to any kind of ambiguities, whether he wanted them or not. And no, I don't, I think the, I think the reason that alien and blade runner are so strong and I haven't seen the duelist for a while, but I remember thinking it was pretty good. Um, I think the reason they're so strong is because he knows what he does best, which is build 
mood and mm -hmm. atmosphere. And it's just the right, these are the two right projects for him. Um, I think he was, you know, really a, a great um, sci-fi director. And it's too bad he didn't do more of them until just recently, more sci-fi films. But, um, and I think that kind of, that kind of filmmaking, where he's coming from, which is, you know, selling stuff with visuals via TV commercials um, makes him the ideal director for those two movies. Um, and, and I think, I think he did know 90% of the time what was going on. Uh, and maybe because he doesn't have this, this, the, the strengths as, um, of action storytelling the way James Cameron does that, you know, I think that's one of his kind of kind of failings that, you know, it's not it's maybe not entirely clear. So in that way, do you feel like scenes. he has a lot in common with Christopher Nolan? Hmm. Yeah, because Nolan's also a director who's going for a vibe, but can't direct than, action to save his life. Yeah, that's. I mean, he's got a problem with you know, with editing and. And telling the story but he's really good at establishing a kind of you know a feeling and and a mood um i'd say you know i'd say his most successful film is dunkirk i think especially the more i see it the more it's yeah i know you, you can figure out what's going on in that movie and and he's and he's and he's doing some deliberately subversive strategies to to make it you know, more difficult to understand. Well, and th th I think that's his thing. And I, is to and like... I think the a the action in that film is really, you know, pretty pretty hard to beat. Yes, right, right. Although there is that, I still don't quite understand the different timelines and and how they match up. Each and I know you've I explained it. it to me, and he's explained <laughs> it, and I've had people, and I'm just, and I like think I got it, and then the next time I watch it, I'm like, wait, when is this? Yeah. Um, and what are we watching totally different times cutting back and forth and whatever. But I do think he does this thing where he, maybe the dumber his material is, the, the harder he works at obfuscating that by making it as complicated as it can possibly be to understand what you're even watching. And so what was that last one? Tenet. Uh, Tenet, right. Tenet, yeah. where it's like it's really just this dopey James Bond movie where everything's going backwards and forwards at the same time. But you know, good luck trying to like keep track of that. Um, yeah, it's. During... I can't imagine it's it's that hard. I just, I, I mean, with 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 a bunch of his films, especially with Tenet, I think he where he loses where he loses it is with the sound design. I mean, mm. it's it's yeah. inaudible. I mean, yeah. just huge chunks of it, and it's and it's mercilessly loud and bombarding you how yeah. great is the sound design in, in alien and I, and I want to get back to ridley scott just for a second yeah. and just say that you know of his group he's clearly the most successful i think he's the oldest of them all and and i'm talking about all yeah, of these guys group? there's all these guys who came out of british tv commercials in the 1970s and the first one to start directing features is alan parker he does Bugsy Malone in '76, and then he was hot for a long time. I mean, oh yeah, long time. If you if we'd been talking in the '80s, we would have said Alan Park is the much more successful of that. Absolutely. Group. I mean, he's yeah. you know he he 
worked steadily until the end of the 90s even until 2000 he had a big you know big movie every other year pretty much yeah and uh, he's a guy I, in the 80s i was like this is my guy this is guy's a visual stylist beyond compare i haven't thought of him in 20 years yeah <laughs> I it's, it's kind of he kind of like oliver stone i mean is the mm-hmm. movies just seem to be dated you know just months after they came out they were you mm-hmm. know lauded and loved by the critics and you know, and some of them are still pretty good. I like The Commitments, which is his least serious movie. Um, and um, I was, I remember being obsessed with Birdie mo, mo, as yeah. much for Peter Gabriel as it was for Alan Parker, but thinking this is the greatest. I've been terrified to even go near watching that it's, movie again. It's, it doesn't hold up. And I felt the same way you did. I liked it very much. I loved the book. I read the book as a 15 year old by William Wharton, which is. You know, and and the movie deviates from it a lot, but I like the film too. But I, I I tried watching it again recently, and it's 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 not a lot of fun. <laughs> um, Shoot the moon holds up pretty well, hmm. but but all these guys who came out of commercials, you had you had Russell Mulcahy. No, or is that video? Uh, he was That's he was Australian. Generation. He was oh, Australian. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. and uh, Adrian Lyne, who starts with foxes in nineteen eighty. Right, Adrian uh, Lyne, right. Hugh Hudson, who I think his first movie was Chariots of Fire, but he never had, he never delivered a film on that level again. I mean, he never had a hit like that again. His, he did Greystoke, which I think did pretty well. Um, but uh, he he was the one, he had the, 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 the shortest fuse. I mean, he was, he was kind of uh, finished within five years yeah. four four years yeah. i think because he did yeah. he did chariots of fire then Greystoke, and then he bombed really big with revolution um but he was a big commercial oh, guy yeah. and then and then i think there's so there's those three those three guys and then the scott brothers tony and ridley who you know have you ever watched revolution i'm sure you have i have i don't think i, I, saw, I only saw the pan scan vhs when it came out and i've they did a, I think the, the Hudson did a kind of reassembly of it or a director's cut that he put out on DVD sometime, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I, I, I wanted I to see it again, but I did Somebody sent me a Blu-ray or yeah, it was I'd, available. I'd, a decent I'd be curious. I mean, I just was, I remember the, the version I saw was pretty dull. I don't even think it got released in Chicago. Maybe wow. it did. Yeah. I want to say like if it did, it played one theater like yeah and it was like it was it was Al Pacino's only movie between 1983 and 1989 between Scarface and Sea of Love it was the only movie he made and um he's been making up for lost time ever since <laughs> yeah yeah oh boy and how but but um yeah that that movie really bombed and Adrian Lyne is still working isn't he i mean i don't i can't remember the last feature he did but he had a pretty good he had a pretty good run. Um, Let me see. I I thought he was dead. No, he's still Alan Parker's dead, and Tony yeah. Scott's dead. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know to what extent these guys continued to make commercials or return. I know Ridley Scott and Tony Scott made a ton Adrian of Lyne hasn't movies. directed a movie since two thousand two. Unfaithful. Unfaithful. Okay, it's been twenty years. And before that was nineteen ninety seven with Lolita. Right. With Jeremy Irons. But unfaithful was a you know did did pretty well, um, and he had a oh, good yeah, I twenty. Saw, I saw it in a theater. Yeah. I thought it was all right. Yeah, it's all right. He had a good. Um, but he's got he one do. He's got something coming out in twenty twenty two. Deep Water. Okay, so uh, from go. a Patricia Highsmith novel. 
And Ridley Scott has two huge movies coming out in the next two months. He does? Yeah. I what saw are the they? trailers for both of them the other day. Uh, House of Gucci. Oh, with, yeah. At, with Adam Driver and uh, right. Lady Gaga. Which seems and, like one of those um, American crime story miniseries. Yes. You know? It looks... I, my... my Twelve-year-old daughter was laughing at the trailer. She thought it looked absolutely ridiculous. And what's the other one? The other is the film he made after that during COVID, uh, The Last Duel, with uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Adam Driver, and um, and oh, it's yeah. written, written by Affleck and Damon and Nicole Holofcener. Um, is it a period piece? It is. It's like a medieval or like a King Arthur. Thing? Well, a little, maybe a little bit later than that. I think. Oh, it's oh. a. It's the, th- the 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 Hundred Years' War takes place oh. then. So, um, and it's uh, yeah. So busy man. He's I think what eighty four something like that. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean I kind of liked listening to his commentaries. He's an entertaining kind of guy. He doesn't seem he seems fairly intelligent, but yeah. But you're right. Defin- like I don't know who cares. About- Definitely has a sense of humor, but you yeah. know it's like after Blade Runner, he spent three years making legend and the set burnt down and then the movie came out and it's it's just such a it's really great looking it's just a fantastic looking movie and has also if you see the uh the european version it has one of jerry goldsmith's really greatest scores but um it's uh it's just a big nothing of a movie it's just you know i don't know you know, that's something we should talk about. All the controversy about Jerry Goldsmith and Alien. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the two, there are two big controversies, at least as far as Goldsmith was concerned, which is they, they made a temp track before he had finished his score using bits and pieces of all his other uh, music. Right. And, and then they, they liked that stuff so the, much they left they, it in. Or there was just one piece of music when I guess it's when Dallas is going through the corridors and vents. It's it's music from Freud that he wrote seventeen years earlier. Right. And then the other thing that they they had tempted in, which is not a Jerry piece of Jerry Goldsmith music, is a Howard Hansen's Romantic Symphony, which plays at the end. At the, when when the alien gets, you know, finally gets blasted out of the spaceship and um and then over the end credits it's like the second movement or something like that of that of that howard hans he's an american composer so goldsmith was mad about that and i guess there are other cues that he composed for the film that were reordered and put in different places against his wishes um but nevertheless he went to work for ridley scott again five years later or six years later on legend right wrote just a that is a magnificent score. I mean, I have that CD and, you know, I'll probably never watch that movie again, but, you know, Jerry Were Goldsmith, you saying, is there, a, is there a Blu-ray available with his score? Yeah, you can get both versions. So oh, okay. when the, it didn't, it came out in Europe in 85 and didn't come out in the U.S. until April. I guess it had bombed so badly in Europe that, you know, they were desperate to do something with it. So they cut 20 minutes out of it and then took out all of Jerry Goldsmith's music and replaced it with another score by Tangerine Dream, which isn't bad, you know, kind of works in its own way. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to the, much of the, anything in that movie works to, to the extent of anything that in that movie works, but, <laughs> right. um, it's, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess I would have just imagined it was really frustrating. I remember when the, you know, in the, in the late eighties, you could get the LP, you could get the vinyl LP of Goldsmith's score in American record stores. And I think my, my brother Pat bought it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, you know, that's, so that's what happened on Alien, and then he got screwed again. But if you if you if you get it now, you can I think it's you, know, you can get both versions. I think there's a deluxe Blu-ray that's coming out soon from Arrow that's going to have both versions and new extras and things. But I don't know. Good luck to anyone who can keep watching that movie. Right, right, yeah. Oh, uh, I know. Oh, one thing I want to say when you talked about the the graphic novel. Yeah. I had one of the weirdest things. God, I wish I still had it. Do you remember Fisher Price had that hand thing where you would look into it and they had, you know, all the Disney cartoons. They were like, it was like uh, two minutes of super eight millimeter film that you could crank at any speed. You know, no sound. You just looked into it and you could run it in reverse and run it back and forth. Yeah, I had. I think it's the same thing. I had the six million dollar man. Okay, so package. I'm pretty okay. sure that uh, it was Miko or Kenner came out with their own line that was compatible. That was the same. So if you had a if you had a Fisher Price player, you could still play the Miko or Kenner. So I think one of them did that. Maybe maybe six million dollar man was Fisher Price. They did do some live action things most of the fisher price things were like disney cartoons and things like that one of them i think kenner put out a a peanuts package so you can get the charlie brown specials you know and it was just like i said two minutes of film but kenner had alien and so i had an alien cassette and i i can't six million dollar man that was kenner Kenner also six million dollar man okay there you go kenner toys so i had the alien one and it's you know the chestburster scene isn't in there. I don't remember exactly. The only thing I remember yeah. is the shot of the alien getting blasted out of the shuttle, and I would you know they show it. I would reverse that and play it, and I had that. I had that after I saw the movie. That was something I picked up. It was floating around a service merchandise store and you know in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and I picked it up for like three bucks or whatever, and, and I could play it in my Fisher Price thing. And, and uh, you know, yeah. run it backwards and forwards. Did they have? Did they have the shot that I find to be the one, the one, the one single shot in the film where I get what Dave Kerr is talking about, where it seems like a rubber monster, a man in a rubber suit, is uh, um, Tom Skerritt in those air vents, and then the the alien comes out at him, and that looks like a totally different. That doesn't look like Geiger at all. That looks like a rubber mask and somebody with right. like lobster claws. And you just see it for a second. I'm sure it works great in the context of the movie right. the first time you see it. Looks it looks like a, it looks a, like a guy in a, a suit. A shock scare, but yeah, it moves it moves yeah. like a guy in a yeah. suit. Which is exactly what yeah. it is. Right. And all right. it does is go like this. It right. only has one move, but yeah. it's like, eh. and it seems like, you know, if somebody told me they shot that 6 months after production and they're like, "Quick, put this guy in a closet <laughs> yeah. and he just comes out and we don't have any access to that stuff anymore. Just put rubber gloves on him and go for it. Yeah. Do we want to talk more about that Dave Kerr review or 
Yeah, let's talk Dave Kerr, and I'll talk. I'll read a little bit of Vincent Canby too, and then let's do a little a quick round of what else was playing that week because it's kind of interesting. Um, so Dave Kerr, this is his complete review. Well, yeah, I mean, he might have written a. Or this is in 2011. Well, no, that's that the date that it got probably got put up on their oh, website. Okay. No, it was a, it was a contemporary review from 1979. It's the capsule. He might have written a long review for the reader, but that's they, I, you can't access the long reviews. You can only access the capsules. Let me ask you this: Have you ever had a conversation with Dave about no, this? No, um, I think I did about trading places. <laughs> Which he slams. Oh, did he? He slams in his reader point? review, yeah. but in his DVD column for the New York Times, twenty years later, he wrote a reappraisal of it. I don't think he mentioned that he kind of slammed. I think he said. I think he does say some things like it's it's aged really well. Um, mm. So I. Uh, well, that was going to be my question. Like, has no, he? No, I don't think so. I think he he said something recently on Twitter that. Where somebody brought up this review, and I think he was sticking to his guns about it. Um, and I think you know his his kind of uh, ammunition is that you know well look at Ridley Scott's career you know look at, look at what happened and you know I was right about him he's he's shallow but uh, I don't I don't I I think he's completely wrong I mean I like Dave a lot he's one of my favorite critics but yeah this is one I I'm not with him on sorry go ahead read it. An empty-headed horror movie with nothing to recommend it beyond the disco-inspired art direction and some handsome, if gimmicky, cinematography. The science fiction trappings add little to the primitive conception, which features a rubber monster running amok in a spaceship. Director Ridley Scott relies on suspense techniques that looked tired in The Perils of Pauline. For the most part, things simply jump out and go boo. Under the circumstances, the allusions to Joseph Conrad and Howard Hawks seem unforgivably presumptuous. Instead of characters, the film has bodies. Some of them are lent by Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, and the African. Yeah, well, I wonder... You know, there's another thing about Dave, is that he was a very early uh, and consistent champion of Walter Hill. You know, loved hard times, loved the driver, praised the warriors. Um... And had to had to have some uh, inc- indication that Hill had something to do with this movie beyond just having his name on it as producer. And I think I think mm-hmm. Hill's contributions are really significant, and especially especially yeah. in that Howard Hawks uh, aesthetic. You know, stripping things down and f- focusing on the working class characters and their relationships to each other and you know letting the actors develop and show that the relationships to each other on screen um you know and and the stripped downness of it all so it's kind of surprising to hear him say that you know oh that's just a you know a cheap illusion or you know but maybe he's saying he's saying yeah that might be there maybe Walter will try to contribute to that but you know Ridley Scott's not not capable of pulling it off, but I mean, I just, I completely disagree. You know, the overlapping dialogue. Yeah, I don't agree with anything. I don't agree with a single word yeah. of that review. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not as big by any means of a Walter Hill guy as you are. But I wonder if you would agree with this, that one of maybe Walter Hill's biggest contributions to Alien is that he decided not to direct it. Because I'm, 
I don't think a Walter Hill directed Alien would be nearly. I don't think he would have. I don't think he had the the atmospheric chops of. and I'm saying that after seeing Hard Times this summer and being totally yeah, no, blown away by it. I think that film is a I, here, masterpiece. Here's where I am on Hill. I think uh, everything he does up through, from hard, as a director, up through Hard Times, from Hard Times up through 48 Hours is really interesting. And then after that, I like Extreme mm-hmm. Prejudice and I like Johnny Handsome and everything else is... Oh, yeah. You I'm like Johnny Handsome, fan. But um, everything else is kind of, you know. Garbage. I'm sure I only ever saw Johnny Handsome as a pan and scan VHS. Do I need? Well, it's to not see a cinemascope film. Wide screen. Yeah, movie. let's watch it again. Let's uh, come come over. And we'll watch the Blu-ray okay. I've got. But um, it's. Right. Um, let's watch. Let's pick one film to watch on your fancy home theater gigantic screen, and then you come over and watch one on my new. Let's do it. Well, well, all right. Yeah. We'll do that. Or maybe, or maybe we should, we should do the do same s- one. Yeah, same maybe we should do compare. 70s movies so we have something uh, to go on for the next yeah, podcast. there you go. But um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not in agreement with Dave on that review. And I think, uh, I, I, I think, yeah, I think Walter Hill has... It's an ill-considered review. It's an yes. empty-headed review. That, that thing about the perils of Pauline is well, just... Well, I want to answer your question about Walter Hill, you know, not... I think he's... A very, I think he's a very good action sure. director, and I think he has those kind of Cameron chops. So maybe the maybe the scene you were talking about with with uh, Parker and Lambert's demise would be a little more mm-hmm. uh, little little right. more clear in a Walter Hill directed version. But um, but sure, yeah, I think. Um, but the atmosphere and the details and all the things that Scott did. I'm yeah. shaking the chairs. I, I told the actors to shake the chairs. No, no that it's, just happen, the, so. it's just such a great-looking film and so creepy. And uh, he, just, he just understands what, what gets under your skin and what not to show you to get it even more under your skin and what not to explain to you. So, um, you know, the other thing that, that makes it such a key 70s film is that the the 70s was about the you know the, the the decade after the sexual liberation right and so and 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 the beauty of childbirth and lamas and all that stuff that starts to happen in in the 70s and then here's a film that's just about the, uh, the perversion and subversion and and grotesquerie of of the reproductive process and the process of birth and and uh, a horror film you know it's a it's a it's a, you know truly a nightmare, you know. Yeah, and 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 and, and uh, you know maybe one of the first or like a one of the one of the most um, uh, interesting body horror. Yeah, I mean Cronenberg's like in addition to everything else, it's got this body horror. Totally, all the the, the chest. The- Cronenberg's building up to it, right? With uh, Shivers and and Rabid and the Brood, which is uh, contemporaneous with Alien, right? They're both seventy nine. Um, and I think you know, I don't know. I just think it's just a, it's just a key. It's a key horror film, obviously, but it's I don't. Know, I'm 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 sure I'm sure Cronenberg, you know was a fan he had to have been a fan of alien yeah 
Oh, sure. Um, what, what did I what did I read? Cronenberg is in. Some, oh, oh, he's in the. Um, he's in the outer space. Friday the Thirteenth. Jason X is that the one? I never saw. Yeah. I never did either. I don't know that I knew that Cronenberg. He's was in a few films. He was in uh, Nightbreed and. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, me theater, too. Unfortunately. Uh, I went back and watched Candyman. Perhaps for the first time, although watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I've seen this. And I forgot that it's a, it's a what's his name? Clive. Uh, right. It's based on Parker. one of his stories, right? But stories. he didn't. Yeah. And I never liked Clive yeah. Barker. I've never enjoyed reading him, and I've never enjoyed any of the movies that have been made. Uh, I'm with you. Stuff, so. And, uh, yeah, he's kind of like. He's he's kind of like the the dark side of what Alien wrought on us, I guess. The the stuff that I can do without. And and in my head, Candyman from '92 was a real dog. But honestly, watching it after Candyman 2021, I was like, oh no, this is this is a better, I'm more sure, coherent. I'm, I have film, no doubt actually. that it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel more than ever. That Candyman 2021's biggest problem is the same thing with the David Gordon Green Halloween. Is that the, he's a huge, uh, Jordan Peele's a huge fan of Candyman 92 and really wants this to be a real sequel to that movie. And 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 was really desperately trying to make sure it stays, you know, <laughs> as part of the canon. And, and so completely ignores the idea of creating your own good movie on, you know, that that isn't some stupid sequel to, you know, cause there is all this stuff that's carried over from Candyman 92. There is tons of stuff with bees yeah. and the, the bee thing is a big part of Candyman 92. So, which was totally lost on me. And I'm like, what does bees have to do with anything in the 2021 yeah. version? I don't know. I don't care. I didn't, I wasn't intrigued enough by this new Candyman to go back and watch right. the original. I saw, I saw yeah. Candyman one, I think on, Laserdisc, and I, I got to see a screening of Candyman Farewell to the Flesh with Tony Todd in person in Chicago and didn't like it very much either. I didn't realize that there's a yeah, second Candyman sequel. 3, right? Yeah. Long live the new <laughs> flesh or something. <laughs> um, so uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times, it opened Friday, May 25th. He reviewed it. Uh, you know, he's he he's not panning it, but he keeps. Uh, uh, Alien is an extremely small, rather decent movie of its modest kind, set inside a large, extremely fancy physical production. Don't race to it expecting the wit of Star Wars or the metaphysical pretensions of 2001 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. At its best, it recalls The Thing, though the Howard Hawks film was both more imaginatively and more economically dramatized. I, I mean, I, I guess economic. I mean, sure, maybe economically yeah. dramatized. I mean, it's short. It's got a shorter running time. It costs less to make, so I guess you can use the word economically, but more, but more imaginatively. Realized? But I wonder if it's this review combined with the fact that Alien was a phenomenal success that got Universal 
pictures going on the thing remake. So grateful for yeah, that. Maybe. Sure. It's an old-fashioned scare movie about something that is not only implacably evil, but prone to jumping out at you when the movie hopes you least expect it. There was once a time when this sort of thing was set in an old dark house on a moor in a thunderstorm. Being trendy, Mr. Scott and his associates have sent it up in <laughs> space. You know, that's the kind yeah, of it's thing. Yeah, it's very condescending. Um I still don't know what these old dark house movies are where people where things jump out and scare the crap out of you. Well, there's an actual movie called The Old right. Dark House, James Well, uh-huh. which is actually more comedy than than horror film. Um I don't know, is he are they thinking about the house on Haunted Hill and stuff like Hold that. Hold that ghost? I mean, yeah. I, think, I mean, I really, you know, I don't know. He's think, I think he's thinking about Abbott and Costello movies. Yeah, Hold That Ghost. Uh, the Ghost Breakers. What's, is that the Bowery Boys version? Isn't oh, no, that, what, the, what? Ghost Breakers is Bob Hope, right? Yeah, or, what was that? What's the one we showed a couple years ago, that other comedy duo that was really Oh, bad? yeah, right. Um, Olsen and Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that yeah, Ghost something, right? Yeah. That wasn't Ghostbusters, Ghostbreakers. No, I can't Ghost. remember. We ran it. We didn't we run it with an Abbott and Costello film, or was it, or was it an Olsen and Johnson double feature? I can't remember. I think it was an Olsen Johnson double feature. Right. Crazy, possible? Crazy House, and Crazy House. We didn't show their famous one. Was Hell's a Poppin'? Hell's a Poppin', like which is right. the, the no one, no one knows exactly who owns the rights to it in the U.S. So. We saw the other one we showed was better. It was like a sort of a very meta self-referential thing where they were in Hollywood and they were. Yeah, I think that's Crazy House. Oh, that's the one where they wind up in like a haunted house. No, Crazy House is the meta one, the Hollywood one. Oh, oh okay. Why is that called Crazy House? I don't know. Maybe the Hollywood studio is crazy. Yeah, Hell's a Poppin' is its own is a very meta Ghost Catchers. Yeah, we ran we did a double feature of Crazy House and Ghost Catchers. Yeah. Nineteen forty three and forty four. Wait, did we run did we really run them on the same night? Didn't we? It was just two years ago, right? Yeah, maybe we did. I think we did. I think we were gonna do an Abbott and Costello film, but Yeah. We couldn't get we it. Could, we didn't, couldn't get the ones we wanted, so we just... Yeah. Let's do Olsen and Johnson. I hadn't seen either of them, but... I think um, I wanted to show In Society. Yeah, That's my favorite Abner Costello physical bit, and they didn't have a... Never print, they didn't have a DCP, and nothing. Is that the one with Which the is weird, because they just released the Blu-ray set, but... We watched it together, didn't we? No, I think you watched it on your own. Oh. I think you watched is it Is that the one with the Susquehanna Hat Company, In Society? Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's in more than one of their things, but it's the one where they, at the beginning, they're plumbers and they have yeah. to deal with this bathroom at this fancy swanky party. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a really good one. My brother just was texting me the other day about to, to stay far away from Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd with Charles oh, Lawton. I've seen it more so than one, once, but... One yeah, of their independent productions yeah. that Universal didn't want to put any money into wisely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the day that Alien opened, which I think by '79 that was probably like a national release, right? Yeah, it probably opened. It, it it probably opened on the same day across the country. I I mean, 
I remember in Chicago, it was like Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. It was like only six or eight theaters, and most of them were showing it in 70 millimeter. Um, so it, it was probably, what, what's, the, what's the day again? You said May what? May 25th. Right, so it was like a Memorial Day thing. I talked about. And wasn't this. that like? Wasn't that the Star Wars release date? Maybe they were. Yes, really I bet. I bet on. that had a lot to do with that because it's the same yeah. studio. Mm-hmm. But I, I, um, I think I told you on the, on the Hot Fuzz episode that this was the summer where the idea of summer movies became right, you know, a real thing. And I had this forty-page color advertising insert from the Chicago Tribune that was. Just color ads for all the movies that were coming out that summer, plus a full listing with all the release dates, and then a long essay by Gene Siskel about what the summer movie had become. Because I guess up until, pretty much up until Jaws, summer movie season was kind of taken for granted, right? It was like, nah, not a lot of people go to movies. They're all on vacation right. and they're going places. Sure. And let's just release junk and and put out. And I'm sure some movies made money over the summer, but... And the first, you know, that week between Christmas and New Year's still remains the biggest movie-going week of the year. But right. it was starting with Jaws, they realized, and then two years later with Star Wars, the studios were realizing, oh, you can make big bucks with movies over the summer. And Smokey and yeah. the Bandit, and then movies will continue to play, you know, into the next year, right. really, if, you, if they get a good start. And so there was this, you know, this big advertising insert and I, I held on to it for years, and I, I still I'm kind of obsessed with catching up with every movie that was listed that came out that summer of '79. So it's a summer I know really well. Good. So let's play this game if you're willing to. Let's yeah. stipulate that Alien, when it came out, was considered you know a B movie, sci-fi horror movie. Got some good reviews. Was was a, you know something of a hit, but nobody's idea of like an all-time classic. That no, they thought we'd be talking about decades from now. Probably not, but I think Fox had a little more faith in it by by you know by putting the seventy millimeter release. That's clear, right? Uh, and the sure. advertising campaign is very clever, and you know full page ads and all that. I think they I think they had an idea that they had something special on their hands. Uh, if not, okay, if not Fair an all time classic. But let's see what else was playing, and let's take a, a scan of our memories as to what the what the critical and and popular reception was at the time of these other movies. And let's say now in twenty twenty one, where are their reputations as opposed to okay. Aliens' current reputation? And, and which let's also stipulate that we're saying now most people think of well, or at least I do, think of Alien as a as a. One of yeah, the, one the of the top, top movies, top ten yeah. movies of '79. That's for sure. Okay, but, okay, but we're right. gonna we're gonna base <laughs> that on uh, we're gonna base the critical reception based on the, the the blurbs on the ads, right? Is that what you're? Is that what you're? Sure. Saying? Well, or yeah, yeah, or I mean, just what we know, we, what we know. Yeah, what we know and the and the ads, right? Okay. Yes. I mean, I think. Well, I think I think we both we you're, you say you know this here, and I feel like I was around, and I I'll, I'm also basing this on my memory of what the buzz in the air about these movies was. Okay, and this so is May, one, so it's before all the big summer movies are coming out. And this is probably the first big one too. So That's okay, good. I want to put. I, I'm saying I want to I want to I want to I want to dissolve the walls between genre films and Academy Award bait, and just films are films, right? So the first ad here is for La Cage Faux. Hmm. 
which was a huge, huge critical hit and yeah. and one of those movies that played forever. Played America. for months. Yeah, usually in just a couple of theaters. In, I remember in Chicago, maybe one or two theaters played for months. I don't, I don't remember it coming out to the suburbs, but I know there are dubbed versions of the Lacaja faux films. So surely they, you know, they got, they got wider distribution, um, beyond just a, a couple of art houses, but maybe those, that, yeah, that movie, that first film played forever. And I'd say it's still, I'd say it's still an important film. It's certainly a cult movie of its time that people were clearly returning to over and over again, but it had enough influence to spawn two sequels that were both got American releases. Um, and then, you know, in the mid 80s, late eighties, they had the Broadway musical. Right. And then, and right. then the, the, the bird cage 16 years later, right. I'd say it's still, a, I, you know, I think if we showed a good print or a restored version of La Caja Faux at the Cinematheque, I bet we'd get a good crowd. Okay, but here I guess here's my. But no, question. Aliens a better movie. <laughs> well, but yes, I think Aliens a better movie. But w- w- let's let's go let's go head to head with the following question: Which film has aged better, Alien okay. or Lacaja Fault? And I say Alien. Yes, I mean, you know, if I'm going to watch one of them, it's going to be Alien. But I don't know. People have different tastes. E. Okay. All right. Let's. All right. As a, as a kind of like. What what film seems less dated? Alien. I, I, yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to argue with that. That's pretty. That's pretty objectively hard to argue with. Also playing. Um, well, I mean, this had been around for a while, but the Deer Hunter was was uh, maybe it was a re-release. Well, Deer Hunter did one of those things where they played for one week in December oh, in LA, and then it really didn't come out until like february i think in in chicago like nobody saw it until march of 79 uh and so we're talking may it's probably only been in you know kind of wide release for two or three months and has it's only two months away from winning the from after winning the oscar so right or, or less yeah that's about right because if so, the oscars uh, used to be in late 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 may or right. late march and so late march Oh, well, March, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it won five Academy Awards. It, you know, it was, it was as acclaimed, I think, as a movie could be. And I would say that I don't think its reputation has diminished at all. And I think that it, I think it's aged. Hmm. I think, I think it's really. gone. I think it's gone back and forth. I think it's. Oh, yeah. For, for me, I think it's a, I think it's still a good movie. I think Heaven's Gate has aged better, uh, hmm. you know. For me, well, I mean, I think it's a more, it would be a more, hard for Heaven's film. Gate to have aged worse. Because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, the Deer Hunters had certainly had its controversies that were there right from the beginning. You know, primarily over the fact that you know Chimino, you know, uh, according to some critics, exploited the war and the veterans and 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 the Vietnamese by you know inventing mm-hmm. this the the Russian roulette stuff. Right. Um, okay. And, you know, which there was never any. Nobody ever said that that happened to them. Um, right. As a POW, um, and so there's always been that kind of controversy hanging over over the film, how it demonizes the the Vietnamese to, you know, p- gush romantically about these American buddies. Um, but do, do I think it's a good movie? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan, and 
and I would watch yeah. it again. But I think Aliens aged better. Wow. Okay. I yeah. I wasn't gonna go. I would not have said that. But I'm oh yeah. Go. I mean, come on. you 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 said Alien is a perfect film, and I agree with you on that. Okay. And, and I don't think the Deer Hunter is perfect. And there's some there's some stuff in the Deer Hunter that makes no sense, especially about the aging of the characters and how long has Christopher Walken been away and everything that's happened and. There's some some big questions there I have that I think is just sloppy continuity in filmmaking, you know, unlike right. Alien, which I think is, you know, intentionally mysterious. Right. Okay. And to be fair, I'm saying I'm, I, I, I am asking us what we think. Yeah. I'm also asking us to think about the public consciousness and maybe the critical consensus. Yeah. I mean, um, I think Deer Hunter is still there uh, in the public's consciousness. I think it's a film yeah. that gets still gets watched and. I think it's a, it's a very strong film. I think there's some great, great things about it. It's not unflawed. Right. But, well, let's but, move on to a movie that I, I don't know was ever in the public's consciousness. <laughs> it sure wasn't in mine. Although maybe I even saw this. I don't know. I feel like I would have. Prisoner of Zenda with Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers. Saw it. I saw it in the theater. Summer of 79. And uh, I remember going with my brother and having a few laughs. But they were pretty forced. I don't think. I don't think it was a good. I, no, it's a. It's a I can't remember anyone. Film. I've never heard this movie brought up. Yeah. In the years since it uh, it it definitely came out. Um, and where does our, this our, fall? Where does this? What what was the Sellers movie before and after? Where does this come? This is this is six months before being there. And wow, little okay. little little more than a year before his death. So he died, I think, in July of 1980. So this is uh, 14 months before he died. This and is so his before th- this, this is would have been third one of the Pink Panther movies? His third to last film. Yeah, I suppose mm-hmm. re, uh, Pink Panther, uh, Revenge of the Pink Panther was the film before this. But do you remember who directed this movie? I sure do, and I think it's his last film. Um, Richard Quine, who was a mm-hmm. one-time collaborator with Blake Edwards yeah. uh, in the 50s. Blake Edwards wrote many of his films, and I think they co-produced a bunch of things, and I think they were close. But uh, he um, he's also uh, Kim Novak's boyfriend and directed her in several very good films in the 50s. Good director, um, especially of uh, 50s noirs like um, Drive a Crooked Road with Mickey Rooney. And, yep. Uh, Push- oh, that movie is, is wild. Yeah. Pushover with Kim Novak and Fred McMurray and... Uh, mm. A lot of people are big fans of um, Bell Book and Candle, which reunited uh, Novak and, and James Stewart after Vertigo. Uh, I think they released the same year. I'm not a hu- as huge a fan of that one as, as others, but it's it's a much liked comedy. But Quine was a was a sad guy. I guess he was just as um, troubled with depression as Blake Edwards was. But he uh, he took his own life. I think not oh not too long after. Prisoner of Zenda, I think sometime in the 80s, a couple of years later. But I don't think he ever um, directed another movie after that. And it's the it's at least the fourth version of Prisoner of Zenda. I think there's a yeah. silent version, and then there's a Ronald Coleman version in the 30s, and then there's a Stuart Granger version in the 50s. Do you remember who did the music? It's got to be Mancini. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I, for some reason, you just reminded me that I spent the last day of August... Uh, watching uh, Judy Holiday movies on Criterion before mm. they left. And did you watch Full of Life? That was the only one I watched because I hadn't seen it before. Yes, I did. It's 
not bad. No, but I if I'd ever seen this one before, I didn't remember uh, Solid Gold Cadillac, which I loved. Is that a Quine too? I don't think I don't know why. I, rem- I don't know why Richard Quine. I don't think so. Well, well Quine did so. Full of Life, and he did. Um, maybe he did. Maybe it was. Uh, yeah, Richard Quine. Oh my God! No wonder I thought of him. Um, man, Paul Douglas in that movie just knocked me out. Oh you, yeah, it. that's good. He's he's an acquired taste, Douglas. A lot of people really don't like him. They find him hmm. too brusque or something. But I, I like I him too. I think he's perfect in this movie. Yeah, you know he was supposed to play. He's like the romantic lead, which is goofy beyond yeah. belief. Because uh, you know it's. It's kind of like embarrassing, but but it works somehow. He was originally supposed to play the Fred McMurray part in the apartment, yep. but yep. didn't and he died right, or he had yes. a he had a heart yeah. attack, or I think he just he he died like two days before they were start supposed to start shooting. Wow, he had a heart attack, broke uh, Billy Wilder's heart. Yeah, and Peter Sellers had a heart attack shooting "Kiss Me Stupid," hmm. uh, and it had to be replaced by Ray Walston. Well, maybe these are some of the things that uh, contributed to Richard Klein's depression. Yeah. So I was excited to see the ad for the movie next to Prisoner of Zender uh, because of all kinds of things, because I did see this movie in a theater, and it was, I think Mike uh, McPadden and I were trying to remember all the censor-around movies that (laughs) were released, and I think I was arguing with him about whether Buck Rogers... Was was released and sensed around because I have a memory of it, of it doing that, but I don't. I think no. I was wrong. But Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. So that's in theaters in May of seventy nine. Yes, and and it was opening that day, and um, the top of the ad says, "See the Cylon and Daggett in person today at the <laughs> Rivoli at eight o'clock and at the RKO eighty six Street at five thirty. Now the Cylons, I remember. I didn't remember what Daggett was. I guess it's some sort of like a dog creature. Oh God! Yeah, okay, so I never—I immediately, never even at, at nine years old, yeah. I immediately recognized the TV show as a cheap ripoff of just the right. commercials of yeah. of Star Wars. So I never watched it, and I never yeah. even tried to watch it until a few years ago. And I put on this movie. I wanted to see what this movie was, and yeah, and I guess the movie's just well, two episodes strung together, and they. Well, let me tell you what it says about it in the ad. It says, the original theatrical version of the spectacular television film. Okay, so it's the uh, it's the pilot, TV movie right. pilot, that they right. padded somehow for theatrical release. And got it rated PG somehow, so. Right. I only watched about 15 minutes of it. I could not, I could not hack it. It was just so bad. Yeah. You know what's kind of good is the was the reboot of Battlestar Galactica that was like ten years ago. Yeah, big. Uh, that had a. I mean that that lasted for years, right? Like, isn't by the time this Battlestar Galactica movie comes out, uh, the series is already canceled? I think, right? Isn't that? I think so. But so it says the super reality of sense around takes you into into an intergalactic war. Experience the sensation of laser beams, space explosions, and Battlestar attacks, all in Academy Award-winning Sensorat. <laughs> but my favorite thing is this little call-out box within the ad that says, two years in the making, presented at a cost of $14 million. <laughs> what the fuck they were talking about? Two years in the making, yeah. The, 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 you know, two years in the making? I mean, that means the pilot had aired a year and a half earlier and was 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 being shot six months before that. 
The uh, yeah, that was um, that was a. Uh, well, can you imagine the, the 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 poor kid who goes to see that on the day that Aliens that play was in me. The theaters? Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, that's right, because you didn't get to see Alien until later in the no, summer. No, I didn't see it till the end of August. Right. Um, was was Meatballs one of the other movies playing at the multiplex when uh, when you went? Yeah, I don't remember. I made a beeline for Alien, but I. I had certainly already seen Meatballs multiple times. By oh, the time okay. I, by the time so you were ready for the summer. I was totally ready for the summer. Um, uh, d- uh, Days of Hatch. So anyway, those two movies, their reputations have not increased. In time, no. I think. Uh, Days of Heaven was playing starting today. Actually, it says Days of Heaven. I want, was that a re-release? Yeah, that because that came out in late '78. Um, okay. That was being re-released every few months because they only made a few 70 millimeter prints and mm. they just kept getting booked in the theaters and people knew like, oh, you gotta wait for the 70 and and go see it. Is it set? Does it ind- does the ad indicate that it's playing in 70? No. Maybe. And in fact, it wasn't playing at least in the, at least I, sometimes the New York Times does these um, uh, archive versions of their stuff that might be from like Westchester or not actually New York City. But this this ad doesn't have any Manhattan listings, uh, at least for at le- for Days of Heaven. I mean, it does for these other movies. So I'm I'm not mm. sure what's going on here. Might have, this maybe might it's have the been second release out to the suburbs. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's the it's the you know playing the second you know the the cheaper houses or something. So there's a movie that was a huge critical success at the time, and I would say it still is still yeah, considered. I think a, it's it's I think it's a perfect movie on the level of alien yeah. i think it's yeah i love it I, I can i can watch it over and over again and have okay next to that is an ad for saint jack mm. uh, you know that got critically recognized in its time not enough to the point where it you know it ever played more than a couple of theaters in every city but man i love it i just it might be my favorite bogdanovich film I won't go that far to say it's my favorite Bogdanovich, but I finally saw it. I never, I'd never seen it. I, I caught it sometime in the last two years after talking about some other Bogdanovich stuff with McPadden, and I loved it. I couldn't believe how great it was. Yeah, it's really- and it made me want to, and I still haven't done this yet, to sort of catch up to those other lost 70s Bogdanovich movies, Long Last yeah, Love. Yeah, uh, Long Last Love, you know, that is a reviled movie that has undergone some reappraisal i'm not i'm has it i didn't yeah know there's been some people have been you know more kind to it i think than it deserves because i i just i i saw it i ran we ran a 35 millimeter print of it at um at george eastman house when i was working there and i that's how i saw a be- i saw a beautiful print of it and it's not it's not horrible but it's just it it, it just doesn't work whereas i think right. Nic- i think nickelodeon is okay i think nickelodeon that's the right. one that i have tried to watch a million times and can never get past the first 10 minutes. And I need to do that. Maybe on my new TV, that'll do that. Okay. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out, I want you to go head to head with, um, at long last love and, uh, and another movie. And you, I think I know what you're going to say, but tell me which one you think is better. Long last love or everyone says, I love you. Oof. Um, if I have <laughs> to, if I, I didn't expect you to say, oof. <laughs> if I have to watch one of them again, it's going to be at long last love. Wow. Okay. All right. But you know, but I'm not that. But I'm not that far away from 
revisiting everyone says I love you. But man, I, I, I got off the Woody bandwagon for a while after that one. I didn't, I think it was two or three years before I went to see another one of his movies and, you know, and I was a, you know, diehard Woody fan. And he really started going down the tubes there with starting with mighty Aphrodite. And then that one just like, oof. But, you know, I'm a little more, I'm a little more relaxed in my reception of some of his movies now. Okay. Not as severe. Well, St. Jack, there's a movie that I feel like uh, has increased, certainly it's, has, has gotten, has aged well. Yes. And, you know, and it's a film that people are always rediscovering and they right. put out a Blu-ray and, you know, and yeah, it's, it's, wow, have you ever seen St. Jack? You know, it's really. Yeah. Um, yeah, that. Okay. And, go ahead. Now, so now here's a movie that was um, another one of these, like, this is, you know, there couldn't be a more, like, important movie uh, at the time. And I remember I, I was totally into this movie at the time and saw it multiple times. It's, it's so funny to think of the 12, 13-year-old me and what, what I was hot-footing it to the movies over and over again to see. Um, and this, is, this one, I feel, is good for our alien appraisal. Um, the China Syndrome. Mm, I saw it. Saw it in the theater uh, earlier that year. Yeah, it must have been. I think it was. I want to say it was my our spring break, like our Easter break uh, in April. I went with my older brother Paul, and I liked it. I, you know, I wasn't even ten years old. I was still nine, mm-hmm. but I knew what was going on. I knew, you know, because it was. Uh, Everyone knew about Three Mile Island. And, yeah, it was happening at the same time, and and yeah. uh, and uh, you know. I guess I, I did, probably didn't understand the science of nuclear energy, but but I understand it. Something's going wrong, and there's a cover up. And you sure understood Jack Lemon with a gun. Yeah, Jack <laughs> Lemon's trying to get get things, and and Jane Fonda's maybe a little too uh, little too eager to get the story, and you know at at what cost. And yeah, that was a that was a powerful film. Yeah. But uh, but Michael I, Douglas I, with the seventies beard. Michael Douglas trying to do like a Chris Christopherson look. And... Yeah, I mean this is this was a powerful film for me as a nine year old. I watched it again a few years ago, and it's it's solid, but it's not a it's not a it's not a great piece of cinema. Right. Um, I don't and know. I, if think it, th- I think this gets to my point where if you talk to the average person in seventy nine, say China Syndrome, yeah, which is oh, the more important, which is, is the movie about, people oh, are you must see the China about. Syndrome, yeah, right. But, but you an know, alien, like that's just the thing. Depends on who I you talk to. Yeah, I mean, well, sure. Yeah, no, Alien. Alien is a film that people are going to come out to see again and bring their friends and bring their kids and you know. And nobody cares about the China syndrome anymore, even though it's a you know it's a solid conspiracy drama of the seventies kind of mold, you know. And it's I the, actually just bumped into it. It's playing on some cable movie channel these days, and I just saw the last twenty minutes of it a couple of days ago. All so. right, I'll throw one at you. What's better, China syndrome or Silkwood? I. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Just personal taste. I'm gonna go China Syndrome. Yeah, Silkwood's Silkwood's a drag, man. It's a drag. Yeah, Silkwood. I was never into. I mean, yeah. I knew I was supposed no. to be into it, and I knew I was supposed to be like, oh my God, Meryl Streep forced to take that shower and no, blah, blah blah blah. <laughs> it's a it's a bore and it's a chore. Yeah, 
China Syndrome is still, you know, still kind of a, you know, fleet movie. It's like, you know, it's like Parallax View without the menace and yeah. Uh, uh, Jane Fonda in those 70s pantsuits is a tough sell for me, but <laughs> you're right. It's, it's Her hair is really red in that film too. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it was the first Jane Fonda movie I ever saw. Yeah, could be for me too. No, well, was 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 fun with Dick and Jane before that? Yes, and I might have seen that on TV, but I, I saw that in so. the theater, so. Yeah. I saw the trailer in a the theater when I saw Jaws. I remember that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Here's one. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Starts today at a flagship theater near you. Um, it's crap. Uh, and it's uh, it's it was a huge flop. I remember nobody was interested in seeing it when it came out. Um, Produced and directed by Irwin Allen. Right. When, and he had just started directing his own stuff again after, you know, Having having the brains to hire people like Ronald Neem and John Gillerman to to direct the original Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, and he I think he returned to directing with the Swarm and oof those are those are some bad movies but they're fun I I I I, I watched them you know I saw yeah. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure about ten years ago and it was it was very easy to watch I mean tons of actors and you know. Good character. I saw the swarm. I don't think I saw Beyond the Poseidon Adventure in theaters, um, but I did see the swarm, and I yeah. remember kind of being scared. I'm like, I don't like bees. Yeah, <laughs> I remember it was a very big deal. Um, the advertising, and then it was just in a, in and out of theaters pretty quickly, and then and then I've you know caught up with the critical appraisal of it when I got the Golden Turkey Awards book a couple of years later, and um, it's it's junk. But, yeah. it's, but it's probably better than Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Um, here's a movie uh, that I've never seen, this original Francais version of uh, The Toy, starring, quote, oh. that tall blonde man, Pierre Richard. Wow. See, I was not aware of that being released in, in the Chicago area, and it might not have been. But um, it's Francis Weber, right? That wrote it? Uh, I don't yep. think he did. Yeah. Yep. He, but he didn't direct it, right? Oh, you make a good, you have a good question there. I don't think he was directing. It doesn't. It doesn't. Doesn't. It, it says a film written and produced by Francis Weber, but yeah. right, it doesn't even say who directed it. Well, he was the king of. Uh, yeah. He might still be the. There's yeah. still. I think. Didn't he write Dinner for Schmucks? Didn't he write the original yeah. version oh, of yeah. that? And I mean, yep, yep. of the guy who got movies remade. I just saw the original version of Buddy Buddy. Uh, Oh. Le, Le Merdure, or A Pain in the Ass, with Lino Ventura and uh, Jacques Brel in the Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon parts. But yeah, I, I mean, remember wanting to see The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe when it when it was in theaters. Like to, as a kid, I was like, "That sounds great." But uh, oh, that's Pierre Richard, right? Yep. But yeah. is that a is that a Weber script? Tall I don't know. Man? I don't think it star, is. He's the star of the he's toy. the star of the toy, which yeah. He's got the Richard Pryor part. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I've seen Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe, and I've seen The Man with One Red Shoe, the American remake, and I'm not a oh. fan of, not too who's, big a fan who, of either. Who's in The Man with One Red Shoe? Tom Hanks. Oh, God. I'm, summer I'm summer of 85, uh, 
Tom Hanks had a bunch of bombs after Splash. He did uh, Man with One Red Shoe and Volunteers with John Candy, but it's the movie where he met his wife on Rita Wilson. And what's the? Do you know the French uh, rabbi comedy? Uh, Mad Adventures of Rabbi Jacob. Yes, that's another movie that I was like, oh, I need to see this, and I don't think I feel like my grandparents would have. Maybe they. Eh. I think they. I think we almost went, but didn't go. It's a movie I was aware of, but uh, it got restored a few years ago, and I think Film Movement is distributing it. And they oh. they sent me a screener of it, and I watched it, and I was you know not yeah, terribly cool. impressed. But if you want to, I can try and hook you up nah. with a screener. Nah, that's right. Say no more. Um, here's a movie I've never seen. Well, anyway, so I think Alien has aged better than the Francis Weber. Yes, uh, any Francis Weber film. Right. Uh, but how about Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, which was also playing? It's weird. It's a weird movie. Um, uh, it's got some real surreal moments. I didn't think it was so great. I, I must have seen it 15, 20 years ago or so when I got my first DVD player. You know, Best that's a film that year. That's a movie where. Yeah, right. It won the Oscar for Best Film. And I want to say it won like the New York Film Critics Circle or something like that for Best Film. And it was a famous, I remember hearing it was a, it was a famous fight in the critic circle because they were, critics were evenly divided in camps. Like half of them wanted the deer hunter and the other half wanted Days of Heaven. So they were like split down the middle and in the end they had, they had to compromise and they, and they gave the award to get out your handkerchiefs and then that led to to it getting the oscar i guess to an oscar campaign Uh, rated r what is it does it have a lot of nudity in it um i don't i'm sure it does but i'm I'm, i know part of the film is um it's like depardieu and i think patrick dewaire are right and they're competing for the love of this woman and at some point I, I can't, I don't remember the story, but I think she spurns both of them by sleeping with a teenage boy or like a, like a, even like a preteen boy, like the kid's like 12 or 13 or something. And it's, you know, it's, it's presented very surreally. It's not like, it's not a, you know, right. any kind of matter of fact thing. It's, it's, it's a very odd movie. I've seen a few other Blié films and it's, they're interesting, but they're, they're not really my thing. I mean, they're, they're not. They're not anything I've ever returned to. This is this is not a film that I think you know has, a, has grown in stature. Yeah. Right. Well, here's an here's an interesting one. Um. That even I in '79 probably would have said, "Oh no, this is the this is this is going to be more important ultimately than Alien." But I is uh, has an interest has. has <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In the public consciousness at this point, very problematic. Uh, Manhattan. Hmm. Hmm. I love it. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll put I'll put that out there. Uh, yeah, I do too. I think I've seen Alien many more times than I've seen Manhattan uh, over the last few years, but. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's got its own problems that have nothing to do with, um, uh, the, the film itself. 
I think there are some critics who, you know, were probably always uncomfortable with it and never liked it. But, but I think, you know, it, you know, in terms of its endurance, it's, you know, it has, it, it has everything to do with, um, you know, with it, uh, you know, being tied to Woody Allen, you know? So, well, but, 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 but. I would say that his, that his character's relationship with Mariel Hemingway's character in the movie, yeah, which is part of the movie itself, is problematic, and should have always been, but yeah. really wasn't. Yes, for most people. No, and that's true. And um, yeah, I mean, not that there is not that that relationship can't be portrayed in the movie, but the but but the implications or lack of implications and lack of consequences or lack of you know dealing with that as an issue in the movie is, is has always been oh, a uh, yeah anything other than the fact that it's you know it's the best thing for these two characters you know it's which is which is troubling you know that's mm-hmm. that's the attitude of the movie which is right know, um and you know i kind of i just don't i don't i think part of it is woody allen um falling into the tradition of of european movies that he loves and adores and that's and that's that's a staple of french cinema and mm. european cinema you know going back to the silent era of a much much older man and a you know and a right below the age of consent uh girl and it's just a trope of of those movies and I think fair like, enough he's just, that's, that's a fair well point. I don't, I'm not saying I'm not saying that as a defense at all I'm just saying that that's what he's that's where it's coming that's a part of where it's coming from that and the fact that I think he was you know <laughs> carrying on with Stacey Nelkin but I think I don't know isn't she supposed to be 18 not 17 I don't know maybe he's mm. just saying that now mm. I don't know I probably shouldn't speak about it Fedora did you see it when we ran it at the Cinematheque? I did. I liked it a lot. That's, uh, you know, Dave Kerr is, back to Dave Kerr again, is a big Billy Wilder detractor. He's Oh, really? He's a huge, and very, still, I mean, half of his Twitter feed is about how much he hates Billy Wilder. But um, Wow. But he's uh, he's always been a huge Fedora fan. He reviewed it at length for the Chicago <laughs> Reader. <laughs> That's crazy. And, uh, and talked okay. about it. So I don't know if he still sticks to his guns on that one, but um, mm. uh, yeah. Well, but here's a movie not, that it's not, I... it's not a well-remembered film. I mean, well, but I would say that it's maybe more well-regarded now than it was when it was released, right? Yeah, I think it helps that the Blu-ray came out, and and uh, yeah, it's always interesting to watch in relation to Sunset Boulevard. I think. Mm-hmm. Not just because it has William Holden in it, but it's you know, it's about the movie business and what it had become for Billy Wilder. Um, here's a movie that I saw, well, I don't know, ten times in a theater probably, and uh, still I don't know. I feel like I feel like it now has more detractors than than I would have expected, but still has a big cult following. But also. These days I hear more about the sequel where people are like, oh, this is, that's even better than the original, which is just insane. But uh, Grease was re-released for, I don't know, 
the how many time at that point. There's a movie that, you know, still has its fans. I saw it on my ninth birthday <laughs> yeah. in 1978, and I just thought it was amazing. I just loved every second of it. I think my father took me to see it, because it was my choice, and uh, I just thought it was great. I thought it was, I loved the songs, I loved the story, I loved every second of it. And I want to say... No, I want to say I'm not, I'm not kidding. I want to say by you know that was in June. By the end of that summer, I had already soured on it. Hmm. Somehow, wow. I was you know I think I saw it again. An early recanter. <laughs> yeah, I uh, it came. Now I saw it. I saw it later that year, or maybe early the next year. It came to our neighborhood theater uh, on a double feature with Heaven Can Wait, which I hadn't seen yet, and that was already like a year old. And I really liked that, and then just watched Grease again, and it was like, oh. And I, but the music had already, the music had already been ubiquitous. You know, the soundtrack was playing on the radio, and I, and I, and I soured on it. You know, I soured on the music already. And then when I watched the movie again, I was like, you know, you know. So even before I turned ten, I was already soured on Grease. And I haven't, I haven't gone back to it many times, but. Uh, um, I would watch it again if, you know, like my daughter said she was interested in seeing it. I would I would watch it with her just to just to see what's going on. But I mean, you know, a lot of my a lot of my feeling about it is is, you know, it you know, it does it doesn't doesn't feel or look or sound like the fifties and you know Yeah. Or the early sixties even, you know. It feels sure. very much like, you know that that is very much a disco movie. Uh yeah. And I and and none of that bothers me. And I and I will say that for something that is you know that is adapted from a from a Broadway musical, it doesn't feel like a stage show to me. It yes. feels cinematic. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. And I mean, in terms of its having endured, uh, I mean, it was playing it was playing at more drive-ins during the summer of COVID yeah. last year than <laughs> right. than Alien was. So. Sure. Um, there you, you go. Know, Fair it's, enough. It's still a movie that, you know, parents want to show their kids and sing along to, and it's always out there somewhere. So, I'll I'll say that by the third or fourth time I saw it, whenever it came out, um, the it was it, it was it be, it had become a sing along, you know, without any of the stuff that they do now, where they actually mm. give you the words on the screen with the bouncing ball. Wow. But I remember I remember everyone in the theater singing along to every word of all the songs. Like wow. at least two or three times when I saw it, and that that didn't bother you. No, I was into it. I mean, yeah. I was I was singing along, singing too. along. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, those were the days. Like you'd go see Rocky, and you'd be standing on your chair by the end of the final yeah. fight, and then you'd see Greece, and you'd sing along. Once you learned the songs, you were there to sing. It's true. Movie theater audiences were much more energetic. Yeah, when was the what, what? Can you think of the most recent movie that's had like a consistent like audience participation reaction? Ugh, it's not like God. a cult movie. I'm going back 25 years to Titanic. I can't think of anything that. What happened know. in Titanic? People well, cry? I think just just packed houses with people. Yeah, just like you know, hmm. teenagers in love with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and. 
just getting wrapped up and going to see it over and over again, you know. I think that happened with those Twilight movies, too. Yeah, that's probably true. With a much more limited audience, though. I mean, they were hits, but... But Titanic... All right, here's a movie that I never liked, but was considered, like, the greatest, and maybe still is, and I, I, if I had to say, I bet you like it. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I'm going to tell you Jeffrey Lyons' pull quote. The okay. Star Wars of movie musicals. Dazzling, superb, a musical explosion. 1979 musical. The Star Wars of movie musicals. It's not I all mean, that Jeffrey jazz. Lyons that was like late, that was late 79. Yeah, no, no. no. Which is not And I think I like. probably like all that jazz more than you do. Yes, definitely. But you could not not like this movie as much as I not like it. You really don't like this movie. I don't like this movie. I saw it. I was like hyped to see it. And I was just like, I'm not into this at all. What's it rated? PG. PG movie musical 1979. Is it a late 78 movie that was still playing? That's possible. I don't know. Although I don't think it was much of a hit, so I would be surprised. Hmm. Uh, I'll just uh, tell you the director okay. that should do it for okay, you. Go ahead. Milos Forman. Oh, Hair, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm 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 a big fan of Hair. Yeah, I saw Hair. I got to see Hair in the theater, which was before Blazing Saddles. It was, it was the closest thing to an R-rated movie I saw. Yeah. Uh, it's got quite a bit of nudity in it. But um yeah, I'm a fan. I like I like that uh I like that naturalism stuff that he does in between the songs and Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the score. I think it's you know well done for the movie. And I like that Twyla Tharp stuff. Yeah, it's you know maybe it hasn't aged as well for me. Um, I really liked it at nine. I liked it. See, even, I think e- even more I think, as a teenager. But yeah, I think I was still head over heels into Greece, and so mm. hair was not Greece. No, it was not a hit. It was not a. It was not, I remember at the end of the year, Gene Siskel named it his number one film of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh yeah, Hair, that was like, God, it was like eight months ago, nine months ago. Right. Right. Um, well, I've never seen it again. I should watch it. I'd like to watch it again. Um, okay. Yeah, maybe that's one we can do, because that isn't, that, that, there, that's, there's a movie that the two of us actually saw in the 70s. Excellent. Okay, yeah, we let's, should do it. Okay. Now, here's another movie that meant the world to me in theaters and that I did cry at every time I saw it and that we should also do because I haven't seen it since. And I'm I'm excited to see it again because I have a feeling it's so goofy in a way that I never would have appreciated at the time. A Franco Zeffirelli film, The Champ. Oh, yeah. God, that's 79. I always think of that as 80. I, there's another one I saw in the theater. I, I I can't imagine it's good, but I bet I bet watching John Voight is yeah. probably probably going to be fun. Yeah, and Ricky I'm, Schroeder at his best before he went totally loopy. That would I think that would make a good podcast discussion, even if we yeah. both hate it now. You know, Jack Warden is in it. Faye Dunaway, yeah. Arthur Hill. Arthur Hill's a reliable character actor. He's practically the lead in uh, Andromeda Strain, right? Yeah. Oh, God. He's so good in that. Yeah. Good actor. 
Great voice, kind of like this, kind of Midwestern, but yeah. So that's certainly a movie that was uh, well. I don't know what I, I, it was a hit, right? It was a it was a. That's, I remember, yeah, I remember it being popular, and it was like right on the heels of John Voight winning the Oscar for Coming Home. Yeah, but it's a so, movie that I think nobody talks about or thinks about anymore. I haven't. I've never run across it on cable or anything. I don't. You know, I don't know. Is there, are there home media releases of the champ? You'd think there must be, sure. right? No, there are. Yeah. And it's, it was on HBO or something like was that it? fairly recently. Yeah. Oh, but, okay. but yeah, I think, yeah, I, I know I have some cousins who I think I went to see it with and they remember it. So, you know, but yeah, crying, getting really upset. I don't remember being emotional over it. I remember, I remember, you know, thinking it was fine, but you know, it didn't, it didn't work me up. Right. Um, I remember I saw the first two movies that really got me emotionally overwrought to the point of crying were Brian's Song, which I watched mm. late night on TV several years after it was first broadcast. Yeah. And then and then Deer Hunter. I remember watching the Deer Hunter mm. on on TV. Remember, uh, that's how I got to see it. They ran it uncut in, on a syndicated stage over, over two nights. And uh, that that movie just devastated me at the end. Probably wouldn't have the same effect on me today, but that's a movie that really tore me apart. Well, here's a movie that's got a full-page ad. I'm not even sure if Alien has a full-page ad. I think it does. And Grease had a full-page ad, but those are the only ones I've bumped into. So this one so, does. So it's the day it opened, obviously, if they have a full-page ad. I guess, ad. right. Starts today, showcase theaters everywhere. But it's one of these goofy things... And that's why this that's why this ad is so obnoxious to me. And so like I don't know why I guess I mean I guess it's a strategy. It's got a big ribbon banner across the ad that says the number one comedy of the year. <laughs> and it you know Love at First Bite? Yes, Love at First Bite. Wow. See, I have a memory of I definitely saw that in the theater, but I have a memory of that not coming out till later in the year, but maybe I'm, maybe my memory's Wrong. I mean, I guess it's possible that it didn't come out later in Chicago until, you know, later in 79, but I, I was not impressed with it. I remember, the, and at the time, thinking it was, you know, not, not even going for, like, a, the trailer made it look like it was going for a Mel Brooks kind of thing, and then when right. you saw it, it was just like, sure. eh, you know. You know, it was Mel Brooks Jr., otherwise known as Stan Dragotti. <laughs> Stan Dragotti. Now, there's an American guy... There's a couple of those directors, um, like uh, Alan Parker and, and Ridley Scott, who were did tons of TV commercials, and then they got into films. Stan Dragotti, uh, Howard Zeef. Oh, God, yeah. Who directed a film that summer, 79, the main event. Yep. We've talked about Howard Zeef many times. <laughs> yeah. Slither's, Slither's a pretty good movie. And Stan right, Dragotti's first film... Um, Stan Dragotti's first film, Dirty Little Billy, with Michael J. Pollard, is interesting. But Stan Dragotti Mike had... Mc, Mike McPadden famously wouldn't watch it because he was so creeped out by Mike J. Pollard. <laughs> yeah. But Stan Dragotti had two giant hits, one of them being Love at First Bite. It was a, it was a big hit movie. It made a lot of money hmm. and allowed, allowed for the production of uh, Zorro the Gay Blade. Hmm. Um, but do uh, you know what Stan Dragotti's other giant hit was? No. Summer of 1983? Mm-mm. 
Mr. Mom. Mm. Which I think is the number two or number three movie that you're grossed more money than than uh, every movie except one or two others. I think I took a pass on Mr. Mom. I'm pretty sure I was like, I'm not seeing that. Well, I was... A, I, was uh, I was not sold on Michael Keaton. Johnny Dangerously oh, was no, like, no, no, fuck no. this. Oh, that's all after. Mr. Mom's only his second film. And I, I, lo- well, I I'm think just saying. I, I, I think I'm just saying in general. <laughs> but Night, you didn't like Night Shift? I liked Night Shift. I did, I, I did not like Beetlejuice at all. Right. Okay, well, but... That's six years apart. Like Night Shift is his first movie, and I had seen it like four times on HBO that summer of '83. And then what? Mr. Mom was his second. And Mr. Mom is his second movie that comes out just after Night Shift was on HBO. And a lot of I think that's a lot of the reason why it was it was a hit because people I like Night Shift a lot, but for some reason uh, uh, Michael Keaton didn't rub off on me from Night Shift. Like that wasn't a reason for me to go see him in anything else. I don't know why. I'm m- probably because Night Shift for me was a total Henry Winkler. Like I was like, you know. Oh yeah, but it's you, you watch it. You watch you watch it going in, knowing it's a Henry Winkler movie. But then a Star is Born. This Michael Keaton steals every yeah. scene of that movie. No, I'm not disagreeing. I don't know. Just for whatever reason, like Mr. Mom, I was just like, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm. I, I'm. I'm sure I saw the trailer. You know, 25 times, and it just was not. I was, something about it was like I'm not doing this. It's not a great movie. It's it's not. I mean, but it's he's funny in it, and it's it's fine. I watched it again a few years ago. It's very sitcommy. It's lit like a sitcom. Yeah. Night Shift sure. is much more of a real movie. But all right, let's do one more of these, right? Well, I want to say one more thing about. Um, I saw um, uh, uh, Love at First Bite, but I know the reason I went to see it was because Richard Benjamin was in it, and. Right. And I would see anything with Richard Benjamin, which is weird. But I think that dates back to seeing him in Westworld. You know, I got turned on to Richard Benjamin, and I was with you. I was a huge fan, too. It was uh, the TV series he did called Quark. Yep. Did you watch Quark? Yep. So Quark was my first TV heartbreak because I watched like six episodes of it. And then I was like the next Friday night or whenever it was on, I'm tuned in. Got it. What? It's not on. It's never going to be on again. That's when I first learned about how shows were canceled. Right. All right. So one last thing here. There's this movie that barely has an ad, and I can't even remember what this movie is. But I want to talk about it because the one pull quote is an example of this thing I tried to talk about all the time and then almost convinced myself that I was making too much of it. But it's not true. Like Everything got talked about is Hitchcockian. So yeah. David Anson of Newsweek called this movie a virtuoso Hitchcockian display of technique. Last Embrace? Called, yeah, Last Embrace. Look at you. It's what very Hitchcock. I can't remember anything about it. Jonathan Demme. Every every great every director has one at least one Hitchcock film. And this is a series we should do at the Cinematheque, and we'll call it Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. And we Who's can go in Last Embrace? Roy Scheider and Janet Margolin. And Christopher Walken. And okay, it's a, but it's not the shitty Roy Scheider. As a psychiatrist movie that I saw. No, that's Robert Benton's Hitchcock film. That's Still of the Night, Oof. aka Stab. Um, but uh, how's Last Embrace? Is, I'm sure it's I saw, okay. But I can't it's okay. It's not great. It's got a Miklos Rosa score, um, and it's it's like it's Vertigo and North by Northwest. Like it's it's uh, and it's got a. I think the climax is at Niagara Falls. Huh. But mm. if oh, gonna, that sounds familiar. If yeah. we're going to do a Hitchcockian series, that's you know, with the premise, you know, the premise that it's only like really notable directors taking their 
taking their turn. Oh, that sounds like a great series. Yeah, because everyone's got one. All right, well, this has been a wonderful return to 70 movies I saw in the 70s. Um, I think we did a, a pretty uh, a thorough job with Alien, even though we didn't do like the plot synopsis or anything. I feel like that. This yeah, it's kind of out there, right? Yeah. People yeah, yeah. know it. All right. Well, thanks, man. This was fun, Ben. I'm yeah, looking forward to the next, next one. Yeah, we'll talk about what we do next time. Yeah, we'll talk about what we talk about when we talk about 70 movies. That's right. All right. All right.